Welcome to the seventh annual AWS reInvent. It is awesome to be here with you. This is our favorite week of the year to spend our time for the whole week with our customers. You're here with 50,000 of your peers plus. I think it's about 53,000 by the time we're done here. There's another 100,000 or so listening to the live stream on the various keynotes. And as always with AWS reInvent, it is first and foremost a learning and education conference. And what people enjoy the most about the conference every year are the breakout sessions where you can get into depth about the platform. There'll be over 2,100 sessions again, and there will be more than half of them will have customers and partners who will be involved so you can get the unfettered scoop about the platform. But while this is a learning and education uh, conference, I usually have a few things that I want to share with you. I have a bunch of them today, so I'm going to get right to it and let's giddy up. So I'm going to start with a quick business update on AWS. And at this point, 12 and a half years into launching the business, we have millions of active customers. And we think of an active customer as a non-Amazon entity that's used the platform in the last 30 days. And it's a very diverse and large and fast-growing customer base that ranges from most of the big tech startups over the last 12 years who've built their businesses from scratch on top of AWS. And these are companies like Airbnb and Pinterest and Slack and Domo and Robinhood and Grail and Stripe and Intercom to what's happened over the last several years, which is very dramatic growth in AWS and the cloud in the enterprise and the public sector space. And you see it across every imaginable vertical business segment. In financial services, you see it with Goldman Sachs, you see Capital One reinventing their digital banking platform on top of AWS, Barclays UK is moving to AWS, Intuit is moving everything to AWS, FINRA has moved everything to AWS, RBC, HSBC, you see it in healthcare, whereas Johnson & Johnson and Merck and Pfizer and Bristol-Myers Squibb and Novartis in manufacturing, you see it with GE and Schneider Electric and Siemens and Philips. In oil and gas, you see it with Shell and BP and Hess and Halliburton. In media, Netflix and Disney and Fox and HBO and Turner and Discovery. Even in travel and accommodations, you see it with Expedia moving everything to AWS and Singapore Air and Ryanair and Korean Airlines. And you see it with Choice Hotels and Hilton Hotels. Every imaginable vertical business segment in the enterprise is using AWS in a very meaningful way. And you also see it in the public sector where we have about 4,000 government agencies worldwide using AWS, 9,000 academic institutions, and about 27,000 nonprofits, a very broad and diverse and fast-growing customer base. Now, since the beginning of AWS, our partner ecosystem has always been very strategic to us, and that's because we knew our customers would want to move to the cloud with the same consulting partners and ISVs, but just being able to do that on top of AWS's technology infrastructure platform. And it's not just that we have thousands of SIs who've built practices on top of AWS, you know, entities like Accenture and Deloitte and DXC and Infosys and Slalom and Second Watch and CloudReach, but it's also the many thousands of ISVs and SaaS providers that run on top of AWS. And these are companies like Acquia and Adobe and Atlassian and C3 and Databricks and Infor and Informatica and Pegasystems and Salesforce and SAP and Splunk and Workday. Most 
ISVs will adapt their software to work on a technology infrastructure platform. Some will do two, very few will do three. They all start with AWS, given what a significant market segment leadership position we have. So in the last financials that we released, which was Q3 of this year, AWS is a $27 billion revenue run rate business. And by the way, that's real usage, real consumption, and real revenue. No EA credits mixed in there. And we're growing 46% year over year. Now, growing 46% year over year on a base as large as $27 billion is unusual. And that sometimes confuses people. And I'll get to that in a second. But let's start with, with what I think is more straightforward, which is market segment share. And I'm going to show you in a second Gartner's latest metrics on infrastructure as a service market segment share that they released a few months ago. And what you'll be able to see is that AWS continues to have a very significant leadership position at 52%, more than four times the size of the next four providers combined. Now, there are some providers who don't have enough revenue to show up here, and they only get attention when they pop their heads up themselves. But I digress. So let's go back to the 46% year over year. So part of what you have to think about when you look at growth rates is that when you look at relative growth rates, the percentages only matter as they relate to the absolute base the percentage is applied to. And so sometimes you can be fooled by that. Let me give you an example. And this is a little bit hard to do because we're the only ones that break our cloud numbers out in a, in a clear way. But I'll take triangulated analyst estimates to try and do it. So if you look at the provider who most people think is the second place provider in this space, in their last financials, they grew 76% year over year. And you can look at that and say, oh, 76% is more than 46%. But if you look at it, in reality, that 76% represents about a billion dollars of growth year over year. If you look at the 46% growth of AWS on that much larger base, that represents $2.1 billion of growth year over year. So more than double that. So AWS not only has a significant market segment leadership position in share, but also on an absolute revenue basis is growing meaningfully faster than anybody else. And by the way, the second place provider is growing about double year over year of the third place provider in absolute revenue. So every year, when we think about what to talk about in this keynote, we think about what builders want. And we think about builders as not just engineers and developers, but engineering managers and operations managers and CIOs and chief digital officers and chief information security officers, a very distributed set of builders. And in the past, we've talked about cloud being the new normal, and we've talked about the superpowers that the cloud gives builders, and we've talked about the freedoms that builders deserve. And this year, when we thought about what we talk about, we thought what we would do is we would share the five sentiments that we're hearing most frequently from our builders. It turns out that having the right tool for the right job not only makes it much easier to be able to migrate all of your existing workloads to the cloud, but it also unleashes your builders to build anything that they could imagine. And because in the cloud, you don't have to pay for the entire platform up front. You only pay for what you use. People don't want to sit and tolerate a fraction of the functionality that the leaders have. And when you look at the capabilities in these infrastructure technology platforms, nobody has close to the capabilities that AWS has. Now, when we first started um, showing 
this architecture slide at the first reInvent seven years ago. It all fit on one screen. And you can see now it, it's, it's spread out a little bit. It's 140 services. And it's not just how many regions we have and how many availability zones we have and how many flavors of compute and storage and database and analytics and machine learning and messaging and people services and uh, this vast marketplace. It's not all those things. It's also, what you can't see on these slides, how much more depth and how many more features there are within each of these services. Let me tell you a true story that happened a few weeks ago. We had a leader in AWS that was flying out of Seattle somewhere, and it turns out that he was seated next to a senior person at a competitor. And that senior person was working on a PowerPoint presentation with the senior leadership team and doing it in a way that was um, relatively easy for the person on AWS to see it. By the way, this is a PR person's worst nightmare. I have two words for you, privacy screen. But in any event, what this presentation said was it said, here's our product strategy. We look at everything that AWS launches, and then we move as fast as possible to launch something in that area. It doesn't matter if it has the same capability. It doesn't matter if it has the same features. We're going to get it so that people can just check the box, and analysts will fall for that. Now, it's possible for some short period of time that some people may fall for that, but builders aren't going to fall for that. Because it's so inexpensive to try these services in the cloud, because it's paid for what you use, it doesn't take long for builders to know the difference in the depth of these platforms. And there's a huge difference. Let me give you some examples. So take security. People say, well, I have certifications, I have encryption, I have key management, check, 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 right? But there's a big difference in the security capabilities. So if you look at AWS, we have 203 significant compliance, governance, security, and certification. That's about 40 more than the next largest provider. Or take encryption. We've got 117 services that have encryption. That is 3x more the next closest provider, and 47 more than the three providers after that. Or take key management. This is important in being able to work with encryption to encrypt and decrypt the various objects. We have a service we built called our key management service, or KMS, which we have tightly integrated with a lot of our services. And we have 52 services at this point that KMS is integrated with. That is 4x larger than the next closest provider and 3x larger than the three, next three providers combined. So yes, others have security, but not close to the depth of security that AWS has. Let's look at databases. Companies say, well, I have a relational database. I have a non-relational database. Check, check. Well, if you look at the details of these database offerings, they're quite different. AWS has 11 relational and non-relational databases which is much more than you'll find anywhere else. Nobody has close to half of that. Or in AWS, it's the only place where you have a database migration service that allows you to switch from SQL to NoSQL or actually be able to migrate your data warehouse. So again, a much deeper level of capability in the database space. Let's look at compute. Companies say, I have instances, I have containers, I have serverless. But again, if you look at the details of this, it's not just that nobody has the number of instance families that AWS has, but it's also AWS has by far the most powerful machine learning and GPU instance in the P3 and P3DN family. 
It's also that we have with that 100 gigabit per second networking, which allows you to scale out your models much more linearly and across a lot more instances much more easily. It's also that we have the largest in-memory instances where you can run SAP applications at 12 terabytes with even more coming. We're the only ones that have an ARM instance family for you to get those scale-out workloads at up to 45% savings. The only ones that have an FPGA instance family for you. We're the only ones that have a truly robust spot market where you can take any of the capacity we're not using at one time, be able to run it up to, at up to 90% savings. Very different instances. Take containers. Companies say, I have a container service. And, and virtually every company has a container service. It's a managed Kubernetes service. We have three container services. For people who want the container that is most tightly integrated with the cloud and with AWS, they use our ECS service. And that's because since we control ECS, we're able to launch every feature, making sure it works really closely with ECS. If you want to use Kubernetes and our managed Kubernetes service, EKS is growing unbelievably fast, you use EKS. And EKS um, is tightly integrated with the platform as well. It'll never be quite as quickly integrated because we deal with a broader community, but you'll have integration. And then if you don't want to deal with managing at the server or the cluster level, you can use Fargate, which allows you to manage containers at the task level and is completely serverless. Again, nobody has close to those capabilities in containers. Or look at serverless itself. You know, we pioneered this category with event-driven serverless compute with Lambda a few years ago, and it's incredible how many hundreds of thousands of customers are using it for virtually everything you can imagine. But if you really want to enable people to run true serverless apps, you have to make it work with all the other services so you can actually trigger functions to, to actually run compute. And so we've integrated Lambda at this point with 47 different services. The next closest provider has only done it with 17. So yes, other folks have compute, but not, not close to the capability we have in AWS. Let's take storage. And this one I'll go into the most depth on across four dimensions, block storage, object storage, file storage, and data transfer, which are the four areas that we think most about. And let's start with block storage and data transfer. It's not just that AWS has the most volume types and options in EBS, so you can tune your workload for what you need but also it gives you the ability to actually elastically change the size of your volume without any disruption to the running volume. Or take data transfer. I often think that people um, forget about how important data transfer is. Enterprises and companies have so much data on premises that they want to move to the cloud, but it's not simple. AWS has 11 different ways to get your data into the cloud, depending on the nature of your data and your application. Nobody else has a little bit more than half of that, so very different. And it's not just things like Direct Connect, which is a private connection between your data center and our regions. If you want to send streaming data in, you can use Kinesis Firehose. If you want to send data in in bulk, you can use Snowball or Snowball Edge or Snowmobile. Or even if you look at our two new transport services we launched a couple days ago, AWS DataSync, which is a data transfer service that automates transferring and synchronizing data over the network to S3 and Amazon EFS. It speeds up to 10x faster than open source tools like rsync and RoboCopy. But also, look at how much data is still caught at companies that need to use FTP to get it somewhere. And so we built Secure FTP as a transfer service, which we just, just launched a couple days ago to make it easier to move that data into. So, 
you see significant differences in block storage and data transfer. Let's look at object storage. S3 is without a doubt the largest and most popular object store for unstructured data. And in the nearly 13 years that we've been operating S3 with exabytes of data, many exabytes of data, it's also become the clear number one choice for data lakes. We have over 10,000 data lakes being run on top of S3. And there's a few reasons for it. First is, it's the most secure object store. It's the only object store that allows you to be able to audit every access to an object, who did it, where they did it from, what they tried to do. It's the only one that gives you a daily report of all your objects, so you can check out things like, are all my objects encrypted? It's the only one that allows you to block public access to all of your buckets or at an account level with S3 block public access we launched a couple weeks ago. It's also the only one that has a capability like Macy that allows you to look at sensitive data and if there are any anomalies in the access pattern. So it's not only more secure, it's also the most operationally performant object store. And there's several things we do to make that so, but I'll mention a couple right now. First, we replicate all your objects across multiple availability zones, typically at least three. And those availability zones are separated by several miles. Usually, um, it's, it's several, no more than 100. Now, this is an important point because it means that you get fault tolerance, but you can use those, that, that data in those applications because the latency is low enough, given how far apart they are, that you can actually make the application work for end users. Now, if you compare that to what other providers do, either they don't really have multiple availability zones and regions and are scrambling really quickly to try and build that construct, or those that do typically have those availability zones in the same building or next door to each other or across the street. And that means that if there's some kind of event in a building or on a street, it blows up, sometimes literally, your entire durability and availability story. So S3, a very different story there. Also, we have a lot of customers who want to replicate objects across regions. And S3 is the only object store that allows you to do cross-region replication without having to create a separate storage class and to be able to pick whichever region you want and as many as you want. So you get a lot more cross-region replication in S3. The third thing is that S3 gives you much more comprehensive flexibility in being able to operate at an object level. And it turns out when you get into the details of managing your objects, having to manage at such a high level like the bucket level isn't super useful. And so S3 allows you to do things like replicating objects by tag or lifecycle tiering by tag or setting access control policies by object or retention policies by object. And then just a couple days ago, we launched S3 batch operations, which allows you to take all these, all these operations and actions against objects, but across your thousands and millions and billions of objects, uh, in a much easier way through these APIs, much faster than you ever could do before. And again, these are all capabilities you'll only find in S3. And then most customers are continually looking to try to find ways to save money on storage. And nobody gives you more ways to save money on an object store than S3. And we have a number of storage classes. We have S3 standard, which we've had since the start, and S3 standard and frequent access for objects that are accessed less frequently. And for customers who are willing to trade a little bit of durability for lower cost they, and are willing to store it in a single availability zone, they have, we have S3 one zone IA. For archival and backup, we have Glacier. Now, a couple days ago, 
we launched a brand new storage class called Intelligent Tiering, S3 Intelligent Tiering. And this is the world's first machine learning driven object storage class in the cloud that automatically saves you money. And what it does is it, it actually uses the 13 years of experience we've had with the trillions and trillions of objects and the various access patterns and has built a model and then looks at your own unique access patterns for each of those objects. And when it looks like you should actually move that to a colder tier, it automatically does that and saves you the money. And when it looks like it's being accessed more frequently, it moves it to the warmer tier. So this is significant savings for you where you don't have to do anything when you put objects in the intelligent tiering class. Now, if you don't want to rely on intelligent tiering and machine learning, we also have S3 storage class analytics, which is a, a, a unique capability that only we have that shows you various patterns in your objects and makes recommendations on where to lifecycle tier. Now, we have a lot of storage classes, but we're not close to being done. And let me give you an example. We have a lot of customers who have gobs of data. And these are, are uh, pieces of data that are accessed even less frequently than what people access in Glacier. And today, the way that they're managing this is they're managing it with tape, either on-premises tape or off-premises. Now, if you've ever had the joy of managing tape, it is no picnic. It is hard to do. It degrades fast. Uh, it's expensive. The maintenance is a nightmare. And if you want to move all that data off-premises, you can. But apart from the adventure of getting it there, if you want, that data is not close to the rest of your data if you want to do analytics or machine learning on it. And so this is something that we've had a lot of builders ask us about. And I'm excited to announce coming in early 2019 a new storage class, which is Glacier Deep Archive, which is the lowest cost storage available in the cloud, even lower than, than you can find an on-premises tape. So this means that you no longer have to manage tape. It's got the same design for 11.9s of durability that we have in the other S3 storage classes. It allows you, if you need to actually recover some of these objects occasionally, which most people won't, but if you need to, you can do it in hours, as opposed to having to do it in days or weeks if you have it off-premises. And then the kicker is it's really cost-effective. It will cost less than one-tenth of one cent per gigabyte per month. which translates also to a terabyte per month, a dollar per terabyte per month. So this is really cost effective. Glacier was the best value archival storage offering before, and this is one quarter of the cost of Glacier, one-tenth of one cent per gigabyte per month. You have to be out of your mind to manage your own tape moving forward, and this will be here for you in 2019. So let's talk about file storage. There is so much data in enterprises today that are being stored in file systems. And they want to move it to the cloud, but they need the right file systems to be able to do it. And it's why we launched, back in 2016, Amazon Elastic File System, or EFS, which is the easiest way to actually use file, system, file systems in the cloud, particularly for, for Linux workloads utilizing the NFS protocol. And this service has been a huge success since we've launched it. It gives you all kinds of capabilities. You have four different modes to operate in, so you can tune your file system to whatever your workload constraints are. Uh, the data is stored redundantly across three availability zones. 
It scales up or scales down as you need it. You don't have to do any of that at all. And then just a couple days ago, we launched an infrequent access storage class for EFS because we had a lot of customers who had file systems that weren't accessed that often where they didn't want to pay the full price of EFS and they wanted to pay a lower storage fee. And so this will save you up to 85% on your file systems you don't access very often. We have tens of thousands of customers at this point that are using EFS. It's a really broad customer base ranging from T-Mobile and Philips and BBC and Autodesk and Aetna and BMW and HBO and Disney. Really a broad group of customers and EFS has been very successful. However, we have a lot of customers who say, well, it's great that you got EFS and it's optimized for Linux-based workloads and the NFS protocol, but what about Windows workloads? Now, even though if you look at the market segment share for operating systems, Windows has been losing share to Linux pretty consistently. IDC has it going from 46% to 32% over the last few years. And even though the vast majority of workloads in the cloud today are Linux-based, it's also true that there is still a very significant number of Windows workloads. And those workloads want a Windows file system. Now, it's also interesting, by the way, if you just look at this Gartner slide, for market segment share and infrastructure as a service in Windows, even in Windows, AWS is a really significant market segment leadership position at 58%. But our Windows customers say, if I'm going to move these workloads to the cloud, I need a Windows file system. And so this is something we thought a lot about. And I'm excited to announce today the launch of Amazon FSX for Windows File Server. So when we first started thinking about this, what we were hoping to do and we were planning on doing was making this Windows file system work as part of EFS. It would have been much easier for us just to layer on another file system. And in fact, this is what most third-party companies do who are providing a Windows file system capability because it, you know, it's much easier if you're trying to build a business that has scale and leverage to use a general file system store and not have to build natively for each individual file system. And what they do is they'll take SMB and, and, and they'll try and uh, tack it onto a general store. But the problem is, if you talk to customers, and if you're guided by customers like we are, and we talk to many, many customers, they want a native Windows file system. They want it to be fully compatible with things like AD and Windows Explorer and the Windows access controls that they use. And the more we talked to customers, the more we tried to see how flexible they were on this, we realized what they wanted was something native. And so we changed our approach, and we actually started thinking about it a little bit like we think about a relational database service, or RDS, where we have a managed service and control plane, but real fidelity to database engines like MySQL and Postgres and MariaDB and Oracle and SQL Server. And so we then went this different route was to, which was to build natively on Windows File Server. And so you can see it's fully compatible with the, Windows file, with the Windows File Server. You don't have to worry at all about hardware or software. It's a managed service like most of the things you see from AWS. You can get tens of gigabits per, gigabytes per second of throughput with sub-millisecond latencies. And then right from the get-go, it launches with PCI, HIPAA, and ISO 
security compliance certifications. So we think this is pretty exciting for our customers. Now, with the launch of FSX for Windows, we now have a file system that will work for the vast majority of customers' use cases. But as we were feeling pretty good about this and talking to customers privately about it, a number of them said, well, that's really great, but there are other types of workloads, often with unusual demands, that you don't really have a file system for. You know, take HPC, or machine learning, or media processing. These are really unusual types of workloads that have very high scale, very high throughput, need very low latency, need massive parallel scale out. There's nothing here that you have that can work as a file system for these types of workloads. So we thought a bit about that, and we looked at a lot of different options that we could help our customers with. You know, and probably one of the most, you know, arguably the most popular HPC or high performance computing file system is an open source system called Luster. And we thought, you know, we said to customers, why don't you just use Luster? And then you can use that with the rest of AWS. And they said, well, it's great, but if you, have you ever tried to manage Luster? It's painful. It's hard to manage. And again, you have to handle all the software and all the hardware. And people said, just make that easier for us. So presto, I give you the launch of Amazon FSX for Luster, which is a fully managed file system for high performance computing workloads. So with FSX for Luster, it handles that very demanding set of performance cap uh, characteristics you need, very high throughput, low latency, hundreds of gigabytes per second, and millions of IOPS it'll handle. It has seamless integration with S3, so you can have the data stored in S3. You can easily move it to FSX for Luster, or you can uh, point FSX for Luster at S3, it'll automatically move it over. And then when you're done doing your processing, you can write that data back to S3 and just shut down the, the Luster file system to save the money. And then again, just like FSX for Windows, it has HIPAA, PCI, and ISO compliance right out of the gate. So this collection of features and capabilities across block storage, object storage, file storage, and data transfer. This is the bar for storage. If you, it's not just about having a checkbox in each of these areas. It's about having block storage that has the most number of volumes and the ability to resize those volumes without disrupting your volume. It's about having data transfer where you have 11 different ways to get your data into the cloud where you have unique capabilities depending on what type of data you're trying to move and what your setup is and what your situation is. It's about having the object store with the most security, the most operational performance, the most features, the most flexibility, and the most ways to save you money. And it's not about just having a file system. It's about having multiple file systems that allow you to optimally run Linux workloads, Windows workloads, or high-performance computing workloads. That is the bar for storage. That's what builders want. Having the right tool for the right job saves builders time and money. It's what they expect, and because the platform is not something you have to pay for up front, builders don't want to tolerate a fraction of the capability that the most capable provider has. They want it all, 
and they want it now. And there's nobody who gives builders close to the same capabilities as AWS does, and it's why the vast majority of companies continue to choose AWS as its infrastructure technology platform. Now, an example of a company who understands the value of the breadth and depth of a platform, and that's also making a very significant move into the cloud, into AWS, is an incredible, venerable company called Guardian Insurance. It's my pleasure to introduce to the stage the CIO, Dean Del Vecchio. Thanks, Andy. It's exciting to be here to talk about Guardian and share our story with everybody today. I'm the CIO Dean of Guardian. It's a life insurance company. It's been around for 158 years. It's a mutual company of Fortune 250. I'm responsible for all of the technology, setting the direction and the delivery, and a host of shared services, real estate, facilities, sourcing, just to name a few. I joined Guardian five years ago because of its mission, its values, its commitment to its employees, and its customers, but overall its financial strength. But I also chose it for a professional challenge and to help to make sure it would be around another 158 years. However, like many insurance and financial companies, I inherited a lot of technical debt and legacy systems and platforms that were around for a very long time. 1967, before we put a man on the moon, we implemented our first policy admin system. I like to say the good news is it's still running, but I also like to say the bad news is it's still running. I saw this as an opportunity to take a legacy insurance company into the new digital age and be an enterprise digital-facing company in a highly regulated industry. So I'm going to start in a place that may not be expected. I'm going to talk about our workplace strategy. A transformation like this requires you to be a very innovative culture. But in order to do that, you need an environment that supports innovation. So we took on a multi-year journey to replace all of our legacy buildings with those gray walls and high cubes with open, new, bright and airy space designs and open space designs with both formal and informal collaboration space. We looked to do this so it would foster collaboration, teamwork, an agile operating model. We think this is unique in the industry and probably not what you would expect to see from a 158-year-old insurance company. So with that, that sent a clear message to our employees that we were willing to make an investment not only in our workplaces, but in them as well. We invested in technologies to make their jobs easier on a daily basis. We invested in skilling, upskilling, and training them so they can operate and develop in the cloud. We trained over 2,500 of our employees on the new agile safe operating model. And at the same time, we kicked off our technology transformation. We took a year to prepare our environment because we operate in a very highly regulated industry. We wanted to make sure it was enterprise ready before we moved any workloads over to it. We performed gap analysis between what it's like to run in our own hosted environment versus AWS. And believe me, we found gaps. But when we did, the AWS team was there with us every step of the way to make sure we could fill those gaps. Guard Duty and Macy, for example, we worked closely with them to develop those to make sure that we were going to be in a compliant environment. This allowed us to think about our cloud-first strategy. 
But what I think is more important and more unique about the approach we took, we took a production-first approach, which is quite unique, we think, in our industry. What we gained from this was quite a few different things. One is it provided us with a highly scalable, available, and secure, but more importantly, a more efficient way to run our operations. Guardian has over 40 SaaS providers, but only one AWS. And AWS has helped us, as you just heard, maintain our robust security posture. We took a very aggressive approach as well. We migrated over 200 applications in about a 12-month period. And because of this, on November 5th, we were able to do something that not many companies, if any, in our industry has been able to do. We shut down our last and owned operated data center on November 5th. Lights out. Thank you. It was an awesome feeling pressing that power button to shut it down for good. We reduced our data center space by 80%. Now we're truly a cloud first for all things new. This gave us some really good key benefits. Our staff no longer worries about racking and stacking servers and infrastructure. We're focused on new development. We're focused on growing our business and driving business value. The other thing we do too, I personally don't have to worry about managing a data center anymore and all the environmentals that come around with that. We can quickly scale up and scale down with business demands and needs. We can invent, we can test and learn. We can fail quick, we could break new ground. We see ourselves as an innovative company now. It's part of our DNA. With one billion going into the insurer tech space, we're ready to partner and participate in accelerated innovation programs now. The AWS platform has allowed us and made it much more easier for us to effectively work in, in with our startups and with our, our investments that we make and our partners. On the M&A front, for example, we no longer take on that technical debt that normally comes along with an acquisition. We now just migrate, as part of our integration plan, we migrate directly over to the AWS platform on any new acquisition we do. Saves a lot of time and money. So the payoff has been great. We just recently launched our all-digital platform, guardiandirect.com. It allows consumers to purchase, actually research, purchase, self-service for Guardian products and a set of third-party products in the insurance sector. So for all you giggers out there, take a look. You'll probably find a product you'd like. And if you don't, post for a job. I'm happy to say that AWS is our preferred cloud provider. Over the next few years, we'll migrate the remaining workloads over to AWS, the majority of them anyway. So looking ahead, we're going to continue to look and excited about how we can modernize our remaining legacy core platforms. We'll continue to expand our digital experience platforms on AWS. We're going to look to leverage their data capabilities, gaining new insights into our clients and our customers, but more importantly, continue to improve on our fraud detection and protection. We'll continue to explore ways how to improve our customer experience capabilities with AI, AR, and VR, and natural language processing. This is going to allow us to better service our customers when, where, and how they prefer. In a highly digital transformation like this, it's allowed us to be a very innovative company in a highly regulated industry. We see AWS as a clear competitive advantage for us. So we've done this in a way, too, that supports our core three values. We do the right thing. People count, and we hold ourselves to very high standards. 
And although much has changed in our, in our whole culture and the technology that we've been using, these values will not and have not. Because even in the cloud, everyone deserves a guardian. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. We are honored to be partnering with you in this journey to the cloud. And as you could tell from listening to Dean, it turns out that having the most depth and the most breadth of capability is often the needle tipper in which infrastructure platform you're gonna build on top of. When we launched AWS in 2006, one of our observations was that developers were largely being ignored by the large technology companies. And what was happening was they were being constrained from being able to have access to the building blocks to be creative and to build however they wanted. And all the decisions were being made for them by those technology companies. And what you see is that a lot of builders and a lot of developers are tinkerers. They like having access to those low-level flexible building blocks so they can compose them and stitch them together in any way that they could imagine. And that's one of the reasons I believe that AWS resonated so quickly with them and grew as fast as it did. But what we've started to see over the last few years is more and more mainstream enterprises have been planning and managing their approach to the cloud is that a second macro type of builder has emerged. And that builder isn't as interested in getting into the details of all the services and stitching them together. They're willing to trade some of that flexibility in exchange for more prescriptive guidance that allow them to get started faster. And they've been asking us for services here. We launched some things over the last few years that really address some of these needs, things like Elastic Beanstalk, which is a, uh, really a, a container for web apps, or SageMaker, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which is a managed service for, for uh, machine learning. But this second group of builders keeps asking us for more with more of these abstractions that give them prescriptive guidance and help them get going even faster than they can today. And there's a lot of them that people have asked us for, and we have spent a lot of time working with enterprises as they've been moving to AWS over the last several years and learned some of the pain points. I'm gonna share some, some of them with you. Let's start at the very beginning with a landing zone. If you are making your approach into the cloud, you're gonna have multiple teams in multiple locations across multiple services, across many accounts within your enterprise that are gonna be using the cloud. And in AWS, we give you these fine-grained controls and capabilities that allow you to thoughtfully or creatively set up any kind of multi-account secure environment you want. But again, this second type of builder said, why are you forcing me to figure out what the best practices are? Can't you find a way to make it easier for me? I want to know things like, um, what are the best practices and blueprints for setting up a multi-account environment? How do I maintain security and compliance as more and more of my teams are moving to the cloud? How can I set up and enforce policies across all my workloads? You have all these tools in AWS. Which are the right ones to use? And so customers really want more prescriptive guidance. And so I'm excited to announce the launch of a new service 
which is called AWS Control Tower, which is the easiest way to set up and govern a secure, compliant, multi-account environment or landing zone in AWS. And so Control Tower gives you a few things. It gives you a number of these best practices blueprints, which allow you to do things like best set up AWS organizations so you have multi-accounts in the right hierarchy, managing identities with AWS single sign-on or Microsoft AD, or federate your, your uh, access with AWS single sign-on. It lets you do centralized tagging using CloudTrail and Config. It lets you set up cross-account uh, access using AWS Identity Access Management. It gives you prescriptive guidance on how to best set up your VPC and the network pieces around it. And then it gives you an easy way to configure an account factory so that all the employees in your organization know how to set up accounts the way that you want them. So there's a set of robust blueprints that are prescriptive and just clicks that you can choose from. And then we make it really easy for you to set up guardrails. And you should think of guardrails as prepackaged rules that allow you to have the right security and operational control and compliance that you want. So you can pick things like don't allow internet access for these specified accounts, or disallow public readable storage, or prevent any S3 object from being uploaded to an account where the object is not encrypted. All these are guardrails you can set up. We have a, a large number of these, plus we give you the capability to set up your own guardrails in the UI yourself. And once you enable these guardrails, Control Tower automatically translate these, translates these into granular AWS policies like IAM or S3 bucket policies and implements them on behalf of, of you under the covers. So blueprints, guardrails, and then you have visibility through a dashboard that shows you all the accounts, all the guardrails, what the status is in compliance, whether there are any outliers, if so, which are they, and how can you take action? So this is a much easier way with just a few clicks and a GUI for you to be able to manage your multi-account secure environment or landing zone in AWS. Save people a lot of time. Now, Chief Information Security Officers say to us when we talk to them about Control Tower, they say, this is awesome. Thank you for providing this. Saving me a lot of time, too. But there are a lot of times where I don't need to see all of those pieces in the landing zone, all the multi-account pieces. I just want to go to a place where I can make sense of all the security findings from the different software I use. And one of the challenges here is that most companies use lots of different security software. Uh, and it's third-party software, it's some AWS services. And one of the big challenges is you have all these findings, they're in different data formats, they're in different services, and CISOs are forced to constantly be pivoting between different consoles of different services or aggregating all that data in and try to normalize it to make it coherent, but that's a lot of work on their side. And they said, again, make it easier for us, please. And so I'm excited to announce the launch of AWS Security Hub, which is a place where you can centrally manage security and compliance across your whole AWS environment. So what Security Hub will do is it's going to give you a GUI that saves you a lot of time. It'll take all of your findings, whether you're using AWS security services 
like inspector for vulnerability scanning or guard duty for uh, uh, network intrusion or uh, Macy for anomalous data patterns or whether using a very large number of third-party software security services in our ecosystem, it'll take all that data, it aggregates for you that data, it normalizes that data, and then it makes it easy and coherent to see and take action on in a single GUI in the security hub. And you'll be able to see all those findings prioritized in whichever way you wanna, you wanna display them, but often people are looking for the ones that have findings, the ability to get down into the details of which EC2 instances or S3 buckets or objects that are violators of some of these uh, policies or where there are findings and take action quickly. And this is gonna pretty radically change how easy it is to look at what's happening security-wise across your estate in AWS. Now, this service only works, in my opinion, if it has a robust third-party partner ecosystem because so many of our customers are using all of these third-party security services. And these are companies like Symantec, Palo Alto Networks, and Qualys, and Splunk, and AlertLogic, and Rapid7. It's a very broad group of those. Those are, uh, this is a large number that are initially integrated and we expect the rest of our community will be excited to do so as well. So how about, how, how about data lakes? Everybody's excited about data lakes. This is kind of maybe this year's very vogue uh, concept like we've had with uh, machine learning and edge and big data and cloud. People realize that there is significant value in moving all of that disparate data that lives in your company in different silos and making it much easier by consolidating it in a data lake for you to be able to run analytics and machine learning, which the cloud allows you to do in a way that's never been able to be done before. So everybody wants a data lake. And as I mentioned earlier, we have over 10,000 data lakes that are, that are built on top of S3. But if you've tried to build a data lake, it's hard. I mean, as I said, we have a lot of experience with this. There are a lot of things you have to do. First, you have to, you know, you have to ready your storage and configure the S3 buckets. And then you have to actually move that data from all the disparate places. And you know, in the process, you have to crawl the data to extract the schemas. And you've got to add metadata tags to the, to the data so you can find it, so you can put it in a catalog. Then you have to go through the step in cleaning and of cleaning and preparing the data, where you have to carefully partition and index and transform the data to optimize the performance and the cost associated with being able to find that data and run analytics. And then the hardest part, if that isn't enough, which is actually setting up the right security policies. And this is some of your most sensitive data in your entire enterprise. And so you have to create data access rules at the table and column and row levels. And you have to figure out how to encrypt that data. And you have to have the right access control. And for each of the analytics or machine learning services that you want, it's just a lot of work. And then, of course, You've got to find a way to make this data accessible and trusted for your data analysts who want to do the analytics at a later stage. This is a lot of work, and for most companies, it takes them several months to set up their data lake, which is frustrating. And so we've tried to take that experience that we've had working with so many enterprises and building their data lakes and build an abstraction that makes it much easier for all of you. And so I'm excited to announce the launch of AWS Lake Formation, which is a service that allows you to set up a data lake in days instead of months.
So with lake formation, it solves a lot of the problems and challenges I was mentioning earlier. And it lets you do it from a dashboard with just a few clicks. So you point uh, lake formation at the data sources that you want to move into lake formation, and it moves it uh, cleanly and takes care of, of uh, crawling the, the schemas and setting up the right uh, metadata tags. And then you can choose from a pretty significant list of prescriptive security policies that you can apply at any level in your data lake. This takes a lot of the guesswork and a lot of the heavy lifting out of it. It also does the encryption, and you can set up access control policies instead of for each analytic service. If you want to do that, you can, or you can set it up for all your analytic services or segments of it. Your choice makes it much easier. And then we do that heavy lifting of cleaning and partitioning and indexing that data and deduping the data so that you can be storing it and accessing it cost effectively and quickly. And then we actually put it in a catalog in a much more easier to manage way for your analysts and data scientists as they're doing analytics and machine learning. This is a step level change in how easy it is going to be for all of you to set up data lakes. I think folks are going to be pretty excited about it. So, for this second type of builder who's been asking for more of this prescriptive guidance and more of these abstractions to let them get going even faster, I know you've been waiting and I know you want to have them and they're here for you. I think to allow you to set up a landing zone, a data lake, and have much easier visibility to the security posture of all your findings across AWS is a huge step forward in your ability to manage quickly what you're running and getting going and being secure and compliant in the cloud. So, freedom. We've talked about freedom for builders a lot over the last few years. And if you think about freedom, Freedom is, for builders is not just about having all the tools that you need to build whatever you want to build at your fingertips, but it's also being free of abusive and constraining relationships. I can assure you that enterprises are singing in the dead of night and in the afternoon and in the morning too. And that's because the world of databases in the old guard commercial grade databases has been a miserable world for the last couple decades for most enterprises. And, that, and that's because these old guard databases like Oracle and like SQL Server are expensive, they have high lock-in, they're proprietary, and they're not customer focused. These are companies, forget the fact that both of them will constantly be auditing you and fining you for some license violation that they're able to find. But also, they make capricious decisions overnight that are good for them, but not so good for you. So overnight, Oracle decides they want to double the cost of Oracle software to work on AWS or Azure. That's what they do. Or Microsoft, you buy your licenses, you've paid for your licenses to SQL Server, you're running them in RDS. And they decide they don't really want to let you take those licenses you've paid for and run them in RDS anymore. They want you to run them in Microsoft. It's good for them. It's not so good for you. And people are sick of it. They are sick of it, and now they have choice. And so this is why 
companies have been moving as fast as possible to these open engines, like MySQL and Postgres and MariaDB. And if you want to get the performance in these open engines that you can get in these commercial-grade databases, you can do it. But it's hard. It takes tuning. We have a lot of experience doing this at Amazon. And so what our customers kept asking us was they said, look, could you guys figure out a way to give us the best of both worlds? We want the open engines with the customer-friendly policies and the portability with the performance of the commercial-grade old guard databases. And that's why we built Amazon Aurora, which continues to be the fastest-growing service at this point of evolution in the history of AWS. And what Aurora gives you is it has both MySQL and Postgres compatible editions. It's about five times faster than the highest-end implementations of these open-source engines. It's at least as available and durable and fault-tolerant as the commercial-grade databases, but one-tenth of the cost. And this is why you see so many thousands and thousands of customers using Aurora, which at this point, you know, we have tens of thousands of customers using Aurora. This is the third year in a row that I've been able to show this slide and say that the number of customers has more than doubled. And you can see it across lots of different examples. You know, Verizon is making a huge shift to Aurora from Oracle and SQL Server and DB2 databases they have. Or you can see it with Expedia or Capital One or AstraZeneca or Dow Jones or Bristol-Myers Squibb or Samsung or Ticketmaster. Tens of thousands of customers are moving. Now, there are a lot of reasons, as I was mentioning earlier, on why people are excited about moving to Aurora. But one of them is because that team continues to innovate and iterate on behalf of customers really quickly. And they have launched about 35 significant features in the last year alone. Uh, and there are too many to mention, but I'll mention a few that people are excited about. You know, when we launched Aurora Serverless, you no longer had to actually even provision Aurora anymore. You could just actually just, uh, um, say you want Aurora serverless, it scales you up seamlessly when you need it, scales you back down so you don't waste money. You pay per request. Or we had customers who were really excited about parallel query, which speeds up your queries by two orders of, uh, of magnitude. Or we had customers who said, uh, I really want backtrack, which is almost like an undo button in Aurora that, that brings you back by a second to a, to a previous point in time. Just a couple days ago, we launched Aurora Global Database which allows you to have a multi-region Aurora database where when you write to one spot, it replicates that data across multiple regions with a lag time typically of less than a second, which gives you even better disaster recovery and lower latency reads all over the world. So Aurora is continuing to iterate quickly. It's continuing to innovate on your behalf and grow really, really quickly. But I want to talk about a different database trend that we're seeing that is becoming more and more significant and more and more pervasive. And what's happened is that if you look at the last 20 to 30 years, most companies have run most of their workloads using relational databases. And that made sense back in those days when those applications typically were gigabytes of data and occasionally terabytes, where you needed kind of complex joins and you know, ad hoc queries. And, and the data levels were at the levels I just mentioned, gigabytes, sometimes terabytes. A number of things have changed over the last few years that are impacting people's receptivity to that idea. The first is that people have woken up to how useful data is at the same time that the cost of compute and storage has come way down, in large part because of the cloud. 
which means that most applications today are storing lots of terabytes and petabytes of data instead of gigabytes and occasionally terabytes. And then the expectations for builders as well as end users of those applications is really different. The latency requirements are much lower. And they expect to be able to handle millions of transactions per second with many millions of people using the app simultaneously. And then what you've seen over the last few years is that more and more companies are hiring technical talent in-house to take advantage of this huge wave of technology innovation that the cloud is providing. And these builders are building not in these monolithic ways of the past, but with microservices where they compose the different elements together using the right best tool for the right job. And so all of this has led people away from using relational databases for all of their workloads. And let me give you a few examples. Take a company like Lyft or uh, um, take Fortnite. If those of you who have kids, you probably know what Fortnite is. These are, if you think about these companies, Lyft has millions and millions of passengers and then lots of GPS coordinates um, for where their passengers and, and, and their drivers are. And Fortnite has millions of gamers and then millions of gamer profiles. This is really simple data that can be stored in a simple key value pair where the key is the number of, is, is the users and the value is either the GPS coordinates or the gamer profiles. And so what we did was we built a really scalable database that optimized running key value pairs at single-digit millisecond scale and at very large scale. And that's what we built with DynamoDB, and that's why many, many companies like Epic with Fortnite or like Lyft use DynamoDB. Let's say that you can't even stand single-digit millisecond latency. You want something even shorter, like microsecond latency. So Airbnb is an example for their single sign-on for their guests and hosts. They want all the applications to work with microsecond latency. And so what they do is, and what they want is they want an in-memory database or a cache. And that's why we built ElastiCache, which is managed Redis and managed Memcache G, and that's what Airbnb uses. Let's say that you have data sets that are really large and have a lot of interconnectedness. So take Nike as an example. They built an app on top of AWS, um, which looks at their athletes and connects them with their followers and then compares all of their relative interests. Well, those are a lot of big databases. If you think about all the athletes and all the followers and all the interests, and they actually have a lot of interconnectedness. And if you tried to build that application using a relational database, it would slow it down to a crawl. And that's why people are excited about graph databases and why we built Amazon Neptune, which we launched here a year ago, and it's off to really a rare and start. So people want the right tool for the right job, and they want the right database for whatever their workload is. So let me go back to DynamoDB a second. So as I mentioned earlier, we have many thousands of customers who are running DynamoDB, which is a very scalable, low-latency, key-value database. And you see companies like Samsung and Snapchat and Lyft and Epic and Nike and Capital One and GE. Lots of those customers are using DynamoDB. And like you saw with Aurora, that team is continuing to iterate at a really fast clip. Another 30 significant features that they've added in just the last year or so. And again, too many to mention, but some of the ones that people are excited about. Last year here, we launched Global Tables, which was the world's first 
multi-master, multi-region database. Um, we, online backups allow you to, while the application is running and the database is running, to do backups of uh, hundreds of terabytes without any disruption of the database. Point-in-time recovery was also uh, very exciting for people. But when we talk to DynamoDB customers, the thing that they probably struggle the most with still is how to think about provisioning the write and read capacity. And if you're a business that has been using DynamoDB for a while and has a large table or a large database where you've been using DynamoDB for a while, you kind of know how much read and write capacity you need. You use our provision functionality. You oftentimes add an auto-scaling policy so that if it turns out you have an unexpected spike, you can scale, but you don't have to live at that peak when you don't live consistently at that level. But those same customers, as well as many other customers, have lots of tables and lots of databases where they can't predict how much capacity they need, either because they have seasonality or spikiness or just they're new or small tables. And so what they tend to have to do is they have to guess how much provisioning they need. And what do you think they do? They provision at the peak. So they make sure that that application will function no matter what. And they usually don't attach an auto-scaling policy. And that's a waste of money. And what we have decided a long time ago at AWS is that we're always, whenever we can, going to try and do the right thing for our customers over a long period of time, even if it cannibalizes revenue for us. And so, we tried to think about how can we build capability that solves some of this waste for people. And so I'm excited to announce the launch of DynamoDB read-write capacity on demand. So what this means is that you no longer have to guess what capacity you need for read-write throughput. You can just set up a table in DynamoDB, say you want to run it on demand, and we will automatically scale it for you. If, it, if you need more, we'll scale it up. If it turns out that you don't need as much, we'll stop charging you. You pay by the request. So when you know the capacity you need and you've been running something at scale, it will still be most cost effective to use provisioned, but for all those other tables and customers who don't know, you'll be able to let DynamoDB manage it for you and save a significant amount of money. Now, we've talked about these purpose-built databases that we've been talking about, key value, in-memory, and graph. And one of the things that we have seen is that a new pattern of database need is emerging. And this pattern is driven by the millions and millions of sensors and edge devices that are everywhere, in our homes, in the office, in factories, in planes, in ships, in cars, in the oil fields, and agricultural fields. They're everywhere. And they are collecting large amounts of data. And people have become very interested in being able to understand what's happening with those assets and how things are changing over time. And so people are interested in what we call time series data. And with time series data, each data point consists of a timestamp and one or more attributes. And it really measures how things change over time and helps drive real-time decisions. So you can imagine if you have some asset where all of a sudden the temperature has changed significantly, you might want to take some action on that asset. And you see it across lots of things, clickstream data, uh, all kinds of IoT sensor readings, even DevOps data. And the problem is 
as more and more companies have this need and this desire to collect and analyze time series data, there aren't good solutions for them for how to use it in a database. If you try and do it with a relational database, it's quite difficult. It means that you have to build these indexes, which are really large and clunky and are slow to query, or the schemas in, in relational databases are rigid here and, and aren't flexible enough as you keep adding more and more sensors. And also, the relational databases don't have the analytics pieces that you want in time series, like smoothing and interpolation and approximation. These are all things that you don't have. And then if you look at the existing time series, either uh, open source pieces or the limited number of commercial uh, um, uh, services there, they're either just really hard to manage or in particular, they just don't perform and scale well. I mean, they have all kinds of limits. If you look at some of these uh, limited commercial um, opportunities or services, when you reach the data storage limits, it just starts purging data. You, who knows which data it's purging, whether you need it or not. It's just not a good solution for people who need to deal with time series. And so we've been asked lots of times by our customers, because we have a really, really large and fast-growing IoT business and edge business, if we would help here. And I'm excited to announce the launch of a new database called Amazon TimeStream, which is a fast, scalable, fully managed time series database. So TimeStream is going to change the performance of your time series database by several orders of magnitude. It's a very different equation. And the reason is because we built it from the ground up to be a time series database. What keeps happening is people take these general stores and then try to retrofit them to serve whatever the emerging needs are. But as you saw with FSx for Windows and FSx for Lustre, people want the right tool for the right job. And so we built this from the ground up with an architecture that organizes data by time intervals and enables time series specific data compression, which leads to less scanning and faster performance. We have a separate data processing layer for data ingestion and storage sharing and queries. And we have an adaptive query engine that understands the location, the resolution, the format of the time series data. The time, if you look at time stream, it'll be a thousand times faster at a tenth of the cost than using a relational database to handle this time series data. It handles trillions of events daily, so it's highly scalable. It's got all those analytics capabilities you want in it, right in the service, interpolation and approximation and smoothing. And then it's serverless. You don't have to worry about the capacity. We scale it up and we scale it down for you. So pretty exciting. Now, I'm going to take a semi-rare detour, if you'll uh, engage me here and give you an idea about how we're thinking about blockchain. This was um, interesting a year ago. Uh, a lot of us got asked, why didn't AWS announce a blockchain service last year at reInvent? And even though we have a lot of customers who run blockchain services on top of AWS, or, or we have lots of tools for it, people were curious why. And what we shared was that we, in talking to customers, we just hadn't seen that many blockchain examples in production, or that couldn't pretty easily be solved by a database. And I think people assume that that meant that we didn't think blockchain was important or that we weren't going to build a blockchain service, which was not true. It's just we genuinely didn't understand what the real customer need is. And again, unlike maybe some other folks, the culture inside AWS 
is that we don't build things for optics. We only spend the resource to build things where we understand what problem you're really trying to solve, and then we believe we're going to solve it for you. And so we spent the last part of 2017 and the first half of 2018 talking to hundreds of customers about what is it that you really want when you say you like the idea of blockchain. And what we found was that there were two jobs they were trying to solve, but they were each a little bit different. The first was that we had a significant number of customers who effectively wanted a ledger with a centralized, trusted entry, entity, but where that ledger served as a transparent, immutable, cryptographically verifiable transaction log for all the parties that they needed to deal with. And if you think about this, this is something that a lot of companies need. Uh, you think about all the, the supply chains and wanting to have all your supply chain partners aware. And you can see this in almost every industry. You mean, on the slide, you can see healthcare and manufacturing and government with the DMV and HR. But you know, think about how many of these types of use cases there are. And the problem is that to solve this really well and really scalable is not so easy today. Again, if you try and solve it with a relational database, uh, it's not really built to be immutable, so you'd have to do a bunch of kind of uh, wonky things to try to make that happen and then maintain it. And there's no way to cryptographically verify the changes. So the other way people think about doing it is they say, well, maybe I'll use the ledger in one of these blockchain frameworks. But the problem is that you have to wade through so much muck and so much functionality that you don't need for this fir first use case to use a ledger. You have to set up a network with multiple nodes and you configure and all the certifications and all the members, et cetera. And the reality is that that ledger isn't that performant because it's built for a use case where it needs to get consensus across transactions of all the parties. And so that was the first problem that we heard. And these were the challenges people were having and really solving them. And then the second problem we heard customers wanting to solve was a little bit different. These were typically peer organizations that wanted to do business together and where they didn't want any centralized trusted entity. They wanted to have complete decentralized trust. And so all those transactions and interactions, everybody would see and everybody would get to approve by consensus before they happen. And again, this was an interesting problem. Most of them are trying to solve this by using these blockchain frameworks. However, I ask you, have you tried using these blockchain frameworks? It's not easy. It's a lot of muck. And we had you know, some of our very best developers and builders inside of AWS try and spend several days getting something real done, and it was awfully difficult for them. And so that's because you, know, you have to wade through all this functionality. You have to set up all the networks. You have to provision hardware and software. You have to set up the certifications. Each member has to do their own part. So, these are two problems that are distinct that we heard. And if you think about the way that we operate and the way that we provided building blocks and capabilities to you over the last 12 years, we're always going to give you what we think is the best tool for each job. And these are pretty, two pretty different problems that people are looking to solve. And so on this first one I mentioned, when we were thinking about what we could do for people, we had an epiphany, which in, in retrospect was fairly obvious, but, uh, but at the time it was an epiphany, which was 
We actually had to build something like this ourselves in AWS a few years ago. So as we had these services like EC2 and S3 and a bunch of these that had giant scale, what they really wanted was they wanted a transactional log of every single data plane change that was being made because it makes things like operations much easier and billing much easier. And we thought initially to build that in a relational database, but of course it doesn't scale for all the reasons we mentioned. And so we built this service that we called QLDB inside of Amazon to be an append-only, immutable, transparent ledger. And we said, we could probably externalize this. And so that's what we've done. I'm excited to announce the launch of Amazon Quantum Ledger Database, or QLDB, <laughs> which is a fully managed ledger database with a central trusted authority. And so what QLDB gives you is it gives you that ledger where you've got that central trusted authority, like a supply chain. All the entries are immutable. They're all cryptographically verified. It's transparent to everybody that sees that ledger and you grant permissions to. It's much more performant and fast than you'll get in ledgers in these blockchain frameworks because we don't have to wait for that consensus. It'll be two to three times faster. It'll be really scalable. It'll have a much more flexible and robust set of APIs for you to make any kinds of changes or adjustments or to use the ledger database. And then it'll be easy to use. It'll have SQL-like properties that'll make it easy for you to operate. So that's the solution to the first problem. The second problem, where you want decentralized trust across a group of people, that needs to be solved with blockchain. And so I'm excited to announce the launch of Amazon Managed Blockchain, which is fully managed blockchain service supporting both Hyperledger Fabric and Ethereum. So this service is going to make it much easier for you to use the two most popular blockchain frameworks. So for companies typically who know the number of members that they want in their blockchain network and where they want some kind of a, a robust private operations and capabilities, people typically choose Hyperledger Fabric. And for those who don't know the number of members or want to allow any number of members to join where it's largely public, they usually choose Ethereum. Hyperledger Fabric is available for you to start using today. Ethereum will be available in a couple months. Uh, it scales to support thousands of applications, running millions of transactions. Really, the, the most exciting part of it to me is just how much easier it is to get started and to get operating a blockchain with a few clicks. So in the console, you just choose your preferred open source framework. You add the network members. You configure the nodes of the members. And you deploy applications to the member nodes. It just saves a lot of time and is much more efficient. So when we heard people saying blockchain, we felt like there was this weird convoluting and conflating of what they really wanted. And as we spent time working with customers and figuring out the jobs you were really trying to solve, this is what we think people are trying to do with blockchain. And we're really excited to give you both QLDB and our managed blockchain service. So when you look at this collection of database services, this is what we consider database freedom. It's not just the ability to use a performant relational database that's free from abusive and constraining relationships, but it's also easy access 
to the right database tool for the right job. Modern technology companies are not vanilla. Their workloads are diverse, and they vary depending on how much data they have and they're holding, or what the latency requirements are, or how much complicated joins there are of data sets, or whether you're using time series, or whether you want a ledger. They're different. And you can use a single relational database or an all-singing, all-dancing solution that somebody will tell you will solve everything as easily as you can use a hammer to build your house and to fix up every room. But I would be very skeptical of that rhetoric, very suspicious. The reality is that having the right tool for the right job saves you time and money. This is now your right. Nobody gives it to you in the way that AWS does, where we have way more selection of databases and the right tools for the right job. And I think you're going to be excited with the new services we launch as well. Now, let's switch gears a little bit. Have you ever had something you were excited about or that you were really anticipating and you talked about it and you talked about it and you talked about it? And at a certain point, you said, well, it's really fun to talk about it, but I actually like more action to happen. That sentiment is a sentiment that we hear a lot from builders. There is so much buzz and so much talk about machine learning, and people are making progress, but not at the rate that they really want. And there's a few things missing. We need more education. We need more training. But the biggest thing is that we just keep needing to provide more capabilities to make it easier for builders. Now, even though we wish it were going faster, all of us do, if you look at the last year, it's pretty remarkable how much progress has been made. There is a lot of machine learning being done in the cloud, and people are making great strides. And most of it is being done in AWS, where we have tens of thousands of customers who are running machine learning on AWS with twice as many references or customers than you'll find anywhere else. And it's across a pretty broad set of customers. If you look at the customers doing machine learning in AWS, it's companies like Liberty Mutual and Slack and C-SPAN Intuit and Pinterest and Capital One and the American Heart Association, Yelp and FINRA and NBC. It is, I won't read all those, but it is a very broad and fast-growing group. Now, we get asked a lot of times, how do you think about machine learning? And I'll explain it. And we think about machine learning as having three macro layers in the stack. At the bottom layer is for expert machine learning practitioners. And these are people who are comfortable building models, training models, tuning models, deploying models, and they're comfortable operating at that framework and at the infrastructure level. So let's look at this bottom layer a little bit. And let's look at the, the infrastructure first. The vast majority of deep learning and machine learning in the cloud being done today is being done on top of these P3 instances in AWS. And we just announced a couple days ago the P3DN instances, which are the most powerful GPU instances and powerful instances for machine learning that you find anywhere in the world. You can see that they have 100 gigabits per second of networking, which changes how you can scale out and parallelize and save cost and money on these models. They have, if you look at them, they have three times as fast networking throughput as anything else out there, twice as much GPU memory as anything out there, 100 plus gigabytes more of system memory than anything out there. 
They are really powerful. And this is where you see customers starting to do machine learning at large scale. Now, of course, they use lots of different frameworks, and we support all the frameworks that are major frameworks that customers want equally well. But the one with the most resonance right now in the community is TensorFlow, and it continues to be TensorFlow. And if you look in the cloud, 85% of the TensorFlow being run is run on top of AWS. And you see it with lots of different types of customers like Expedia and Siemens and Zendex, Shell and Snapchat. But for our customers who run TensorFlow, there are some challenges. And they talk to us about these challenges, particularly scaling challenges. And what they tell us is it's really difficult to actually consume as much of the GPU with TensorFlow as we want. And that's because there's a lot of complexity in distributing the weight sufficiently of the neural network across the GPUs with TensorFlow. And so if you just look at kind of a typical workload, you can look at one that has 256 GPUs. Usually with TensorFlow, it only uses about 65% of the GPU. Now, I think everybody knows the GPUs are really expensive. And so that's wasteful, and people don't like that. And in AWS, we have separable teams who work on each framework. And so we have a team that works on TensorFlow, and we challenge the team. We said, look, most of the TensorFlow in the cloud right now is being run in AWS, and yet, look at the problems our customers have. Look at how inefficient and how much money they're wasting. Solve that. Find a way to invent and solve that. And so that team went away and innovated and made some pretty significant improvements on the TensorFlow framework. And what they did was they found a way to invent distribute those weights much more efficiently across the neural network, such that now, with that same 256 GPU workload, they're using 90% of the GPU, almost linear scaling. That is a huge improvement in terms of your efficiency and the cost equation. And it, you know, just to give you an idea of what that means, let's look at an example here. So this is ResNet 50, which is a, a common computer vision model. And before, the fastest train time on this was a company in the Bay Area that wrote a proprietary algorithm on proprietary hardware that isn't available to all of you. Um, and they were able to do it in 30 minutes. With this optimized TensorFlow on our P3 instances that the machine learning team at AWS built, we, we were able to do that same ResNet 50 workload in less than half the time, in 14 minutes, which is pretty cool. And by the way, what's most cool about it, in my opinion, is it's not some kind of optical benchmark used in all these proprietary ways that aren't available to you. All the changes we made, all the ways we did this, are available to all of you. You can use those P3 instances, which are available in virtually every AWS region. And then the optimized TensorFlow invention that this team did is available for you, either in SageMaker when you use TensorFlow or just in the AWS Deep Learning Omni. So all of that can be put to use right now for you as you're running TensorFlow workloads. Now, as I mentioned, it's a lot of, you know, I think a lot of interesting and innovative work that the TensorFlow team at AWS did, but TensorFlow is one of several frameworks that customers use. And I think we have a different approach here than most of the other providers, where most of them are trying to funnel all the workloads and everything into TensorFlow. And as you can tell, we don't believe in one tool to rule the world. We want you to use the right tool for the right job. 
And it turns out, if you're doing things like video analytics or recommendations or natural language processing, MXNet is a great solution that scales the best. Or if you're doing computer vision, Cafe 2 is great. There's all kinds of incredibly innovative uh, uh, research being done on top of PyTorch 2. More than half of our customers who do machine learning in AWS are using more than two frameworks in their everyday machine learning work. We will always make sure that all the frameworks you care about are supported equally well so you have the right tool for the right job. And the one constant in a very fluid world in machine learning that we've seen is change. And I'm pretty confident in the next couple of years there'll be other frameworks you care about too that will support as well. Now, we've been talking about training and AWS has made training the ability to build and train and deploy models much easier than ever before. But when you think about machine learning, there's two big pieces. There's the training and then there's the inference. Uh, and, and the inference are predictions, but it was commonly called inference. And if you think about the cost equation, even though people spend a lot of time talking about training, in part because of the stage of where we are in machine learning right now, the vast majority of cost, probably about 90% of it, for big scalable machine learning workloads in production is in inference. And it makes sense. Take an application like Alexa. If you think about it, we train a very substantial model a few times a week in Alexa, but think about how many questions and then predictions or inferences and answers are happening every minute across the world. That's inference, and about 90% of their cost in machine learning is on the inference side. And there hasn't been much optimization and help on the inference side. It's largely been focused on the training side. And there are two parts in inference that make it complicated and inefficient and more costly than people want. The first thing is, it is not one size fits all. You know, if you're looking at something like a simple classifier, it only takes a few tops, say, only a few tops that you need. But if you're taking the advanced computer vision algorithm, that often takes hundreds of tops. And so they're not all the same. And then the problem is that inference runs best on GPUs. GPUs are really expensive. And you have to figure out how much GPU to provision. It's like the old infrastructure days before AWS, which was you'd have to guess how much to provision. You're always going to provision for the peak because you don't want to be you know, stalled or, or, or impact the customer experience. And you're sitting on all this wasted money. And people don't like having no elasticity. And so you know, it took a long time before AWS came around. Fortunately for all of you, it won't take so long to have the elasticity in GPUs. I'm excited to announce the launch of Amazon Elastic Inference, which will let you add GPU acceleration to any Amazon EC2 instance for faster inference and much lower costs, up to 75% savings. So here's how it works. You know, typically, you are um, running inference like you're running trading on these big, beefy P3 instances. And what we see typically is that the average utilization of these P3 instances GPUs are about 10 to 30%, which is pretty wasteful. With Elastic Inference, you don't have to waste all that cost and all that GPU. Instead, you can take any EC2 instance. In this case, as an example, I'll use an M5 large. And then you can provision Elastic Inference to it right at the time that you're creating that instance. And so what happens is you create the instance. You say you want elastic inference. You can start at one teraflop, or you can 
You can do up to 32 teraflops. And then you effectively end up deploying it in a way where you attach that elastic inference to an instance, much like you attach an EBS volume. It lives in the same VPC. And then what we've been done is that elastic inference can detect when there's one of the major frameworks running on that EC2 instance. And then it looks at the pieces in that neural network that would best benefit from acceleration and then moves it over to elastic inference to run it to give you that performance and acceleration you want. And you only need to provision the amount of elastic inference that you want. So let me give you an idea of how this changes the cost. Let's look again at a ResNet 50 workload we were talking about earlier and running 360,000 images an hour and using just a general M5 instance with the smallest piece of elastic inference you can provision, that costs 22 cents an hour, which is about 75% less than what you do on a P2 or P3 instance. That is huge savings, huge savings. So this is a, a pretty significant game changer in being able to run inference much more cost effectively. Now, we have customers who have large machine learning models that are, are in production that are spitting out lots of inferences where they say, well, actually, I can consume all the GPUs, and I want to consume all the GPUs, or the latency is such that I need it in the hardware. And the way that you have to solve something like that is in a chip. Now, we have a fair bit of experience at this point with chips. We acquired a company in Israel called Annapurna a few years ago. They have been designing all kinds of cards and NICs for us to do EC2 network acceleration that has completely changed the performance for our customers in EC2. Just a couple of days ago in our Monday Night Live presentation in Peter's keynote, you heard that they built a purpose-built chip that's based on the ARM architecture that allows you to have, called Graviton, that allows you to, have, to use on scale-out workloads, a lot of generalized workloads, and save up to 45% in the process. And so we asked that team if they would think about trying to build a chip or a processor in this space, but focused on trying to change what is the big driver of cost for our customers doing machine learning, which is inference. And I'm excited to announce coming next year a new processor called AWS Inferentia, which is a high-performing machine learning inference chip that's custom designed by AWS. And so Inferentia will be a very high throughput, low latency, sustained performance, very cost-effective processor for inference. You'll be able to have on each of those chips hundreds of tops. You can band them together to get thousands of tops if you want. It'll support multiple data types like int8 or fp16 with mixed precision. It'll support all the major frameworks, TensorFlow, MXNet, PyTorch, and then It'll be available for you on all the EC2 instance types, as well as in SageMaker, and you'll be able to use it with elastic inference. And we think that the cost equation, on top of the 75% savings you can get with elastic inference, if you layer inferential on top of it, it's another 10x improvement in cost. So this is a big game changer, these two launches across inference for our customers. So let's talk about the middle layer of the stack. You know, that bottom layer is for expert machine learning practitioners who are comfortable with that infrastructure and that framework layer. But the reality is 
There just aren't that many of those people in the world. More and more are being trained at universities, but there just aren't that many, and they mostly hang out at the big tech companies. And so if we want machine learning to move much more expansively and move from a little more conversation to a little more action, please, at most enterprises, we have got to make it much easier and more accessible for everyday developers and data scientists. And that's why we launched SageMaker last year at reInvent. And just as a quick recap, SageMaker is a managed machine learning service that makes it so much easier to build, train, tune, and deploy machine learning models. So the first thing you have is to visualize your data and see what's interesting. You have a hosted Jupyter net notebook right at your fingertips. And then we have all these algorithms and frameworks built into SageMaker to make it easy for you. So we have separable teams who've taken the most popular algorithms and worked to make them 10x more performant in SageMaker than you'll find anywhere else. Uh, and then you can just deploy them, and all the frameworks and drivers are taken care of under the covers for you. You can, of course, choose whatever frame you, framework you want. We have native integrations with PyTorch and MXNet and TensorFlow. And you can also bring any algorithm you want. And then we make it much easier to train your models. You have one-click ability to set up a cluster. We'll auto-scale it for you. We'll train it, and then we'll tear it down for you when you're done. We'll give you an opportunity to do automatic tuning with hyperparameter optimization, which makes it much faster to train your models. And then, again, you won't find any place that makes it close to as simple to deploy those models at scale in production, where you have one-click deployment to multiple availability zones for fault tolerance, where we'll auto-scale you and manage it for you. And then moving forward, we'll maintain it. And it's not just the auto-scaling, it's all the security patches and the maintenance and things of that sort. So it has never been easier to be able to build a machine learning model than it is today. And it's much more approachable for everyday builders and everyday developers and everyday data scientists. And it's part of why you see so many customers using SageMaker, over 10,000 customers alone in just a year. And it's a large number of them. You heard on Monday night, GE Healthcare say that they're all in on machine learning, Intuit and Cox Automotive and Formula One and NFL and Korean Airlines and Expedia, Major League Baseball and Edmonds and Ryanair and Shutterfly and GoDaddy and FICO. It's incredible, after just a year, how many companies are choosing to standardize their machine learning on SageMaker and AWS. Really remarkable. Now, somebody, the reason that people are so excited about SageMaker is the speed with which it allows everyday developers to actually get started and be able to use machine learning. And speed has been a recurring theme for AWS over the years, and trying to give you speed to actually get what you want done. Somebody knows a little bit about speed is the next speaker I'm going to bring to the stage. He started off as a mechanic, and he rose and built his way all the way up to manage 22 championship Formula One teams. He's currently the managing director of motorsports for Formula One. It's my privilege to bring up to the stage Ross Braun. Thank you, Andy. It's, uh, it's great to be here. 
and hopefully give you an insight into my world of Formula One and the role that AWS are playing. I like to think of Formula One as a gladiatorial sport between the drivers and a virtual war between the engineers and technicians to produce the best car. And it's a contest, it's a complete team contest. Neither can win without the other. With the fastest racing cars on the planet, 230 miles an hour, but what's really impressive is we pull 5G in cornering and braking. It's a big business and a big sport, and it's growing. We race in 21 different countries, and we have more than half a billion fans. And we're generating multi-dollar revenues for both the teams and our business. It's about going fast in every part of the competition, but the races aren't only one out on the track. A fast pit stop can lose or win a race, and every millisecond counts. So take a look at this, but look carefully, or you might miss it. So 1.6 seconds to change four wheels and tires. And you can imagine the training that goes into that, and that's just typical of Formula One. It's also a contest of innovative minds, the virtual war that I mentioned. And every team has hundreds of engineers, all trying to produce the best car, the best aerodynamics, the best chassis, the best engine. And undoubtedly, standing still is going backwards in Formula One. And to my mind, these are the most technologically advanced racing cars in the world. After three decades of working in teams, I joined Formula One Motorsport in 2016 with a mission. Make sure we had even better racing cars. Make sure we had the best action on the track and develop ways that our fans can engage with the sport like never before. We're the most data-rich sport in the world, and data fuels our performance. Each car has more than 120 sensors producing thousands of streams of data, and more than a, more than a million data points per second are transmitted between the car and the pits during a race. We chose AWS to be our partner to help unlock all of this data for the benefit of the lifeblood of our sport, the fans. We've focused on two initiatives so far, using high-performance computing to develop better and more raceable cars, and to use machine learning to increase fan engagement. And I'd like to take a closer look. Formula One helps to develop the rules and regulations of the sport. And we now have put a team together specifically to do that task. Amazingly, it had never been done before. And currently, the, the cars suffer badly when they're following each other. The airflow from the car in front disturbs the car behind too much. 
and we want to make the aerodynamics of the cars more benign and much less sensitive to encourage wheel-to-wheel -wheel action. So we're developing designs using two cars, one following another, and we're doing it mainly through CFD. And as you can imagine, this is a massively complex problem and has never been done before. AWS High Performance Computing is enabling us to do this and experiment faster and better than ever before. We also want to give our fans a better insight into what's happening on the track. And using Amazon SageMaker, we can build models that help us understand how a car is being driven. Is the driver attacking, or is he in conservation mode? So we're training machine learning models using this huge amount of data that we have in Formula One. And we're using those models to make predictions of what's going to happen in the race. We call these F1 insights. And for the 2018 season, we've started the process. We're digging deeper to show you where the performance is coming from. When is a car faster? Why is it faster? And I'm about to show you an example from Mexico in a recent race. And on the screen, you'll see a graphic that compares two drivers, Ricciardo and Hartley. Take a look. Look at the graphic on the lower right side, and you can compare Ricciardo's corner speed as he follows Hartley. And this comparison helps the fans see where and how Ricciardo is gaining time. And it's not always on the straights. We're not stopping there. And for next season, we're expanding F1 insights for our viewers. By further integrating the telemetry data, such as the car position, the tire condition, even the weather, we can use SageMaker to predict car performance, pit stops, and race strategy. I'm going to give you a world first preview of some prospective and exciting new AI integrations into next year's F1 TV broadcast. And I've selected three new cases to give you an insight. Look at the box on the right. We know that somebody's in trouble. His rear tires are overheating. But we can look at the history of uh, the tires and how they've worked and where he is in the race. And machine learning can help us apply a proper analysis of a situation. And we can bring that information to the fans and help them understand whether the guy's in trouble or whether he can manage the situation. And these are insights the team's always had, but we're going to bring them out to the fans and show them what's happening. Here's another fascinating element for our fans, overtaking. Wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing is the essence and critical aspect of the sport. And now with machine learning and using live data and historical data, we can make predictions about what's going to happen. So the graphic on the right shows what we expect is going to happen in this event. Now, what's great about this is that the teams don't have all this data. We as Formula One know the data from both cars, and we can make this comparison. And that's never been done before. The pit stop. 
It's the major strategic element of the race, and one stop is mandatory. Stopping at the right time, fitting the right tire, can win or lose a race. And we're going to take all the data and give the fans an insight into why they stopped and when they stopped. Did the team and driver make the right call? So the info box you see on the bottom is giving the fans that insight that we can build using machine learning. Further down the road, what's really exciting is we're going to in investigate the influence of the tracks and the racing formats on the quality of the racing. Can we create tracks that achieve better racing and better overtaking? Can we build models to allow us to do that? Can we change the format of racing to make it more exciting and less predictable? For instance, what happens if we change the formation of the starting grid? So instead of being spread out, it's bunched up. And we believe that using machine learning, AWS is enabling us to do these things. I hope I've been able to give you an F1 insight into the work we're doing. I'm incredibly excited about this new phase. And the partnership with AWS is bringing so many opportunities. And I hope you've been able to get an insight into what we're doing. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Ross. Uh, you know, Ross is a legend in motorsports, and it is a privilege and an honor for us to be working and partnering so closely with F1. Super cool what they're doing on top of the platform and on top of SageMaker. So, as I mentioned, a lot of customers are excited about and having success with SageMaker. But what happens is when you take a group of people that have been constrained for so long and give them hope and give them the ability to get started, it whets their appetite and they have lots of things that they want us to build, which, by the way, is great. Keep them coming. And so what else are people asking us to do with SageMaker? Well, people say, well, it's awesome that you give us a hosted notebook that we can visualize what data is interesting. But a lot of times, I can't even get started because I don't even know what the objects are. I, I can't label anything. And if you think about it, you typically have to label what objects are to train the model so they know what they are to actually get results, especially when you're talking about things like computer vision or speech or language or things like that. So if you take this example on the screen, you need to know what's a stop sign, what's a traffic light, or what's a pedestrian, importantly. And the way this works in things like videos and training is that you, it requires thousands of hours of these video recordings, consisting of hundreds of millions of video frames. And you have to label everything. And the way this is done today, when it is done, is that it's typically distributed across thousands of human beings, which is obviously expensive and slow and hard to achieve. And if those humans make mistakes, you have the wrong labels and you're training models the wrong way. But typically, just because it's, it's so hard to get so many people to do it, most companies just don't bother. And that makes it much, much harder to really build these types of computer vision models. And so we wanted to help with that in SageMaker. We view that as part of the flow enabling everyday developers and data scientists to build these models. So I'm excited to bring to you the launch 
of AWS SageMaker Ground Truth, which is a highly accurate training data set labeling service for you. Now this should reduce the cost of labeling for you for those that even engage in doing it by up to 70%. And it's really interesting how it works. So what you do is you take all the data that you want help labeling and you point ground truth at those S3 buckets and then you decide, do you want ground truth to try to auto-label or do you want it to use human labelers? And in the case where you choose auto-labeling, you also specify the confidence threshold in each of those labels that you want the model to be over, or if it's not, it's sent to human labelers. And you can choose from three different big pools of human labelers, either the 500,000 plus global Mechanical Turk workers, who by the way, do a lot of this work every day for companies who use Mechanical Turk, or we have a number of third parties that we have vetted who do this type of work, if you want some kind of SLA on performance, or a third group, if you just want private workers, you know, people, your friends, or people at your company, you can choose. And then once you've chosen auto-labeling, what we do is we pull a small and diverse set of those objects from S3, and um, we send them to the human labelers of your choice, and we start building a private model for you, a labeling model that is using something called active learning that's constantly learning from all the inputs and adjusting the algorithm. And then what we'll do is we'll take that auto-labeling private algorithm that we've built for you and we'll run the rest of your objects through it and those that we can auto-label at the confidence level you specified or higher are done. Those that can't, we send it out to human labelers. Now one of the cool things too is that every time a label is sent to humans, when it comes back, it feeds into that active learning algorithm, so it keeps getting better and better. And as you have future objects to label, you can do more and more through auto-label. Of course, if you want to choose 100% human labelers, you can do that too. We have three very large pools of eager human labelers that would like to do that. So this is a total game changer in being able to label your data so you can build those types of models that before were really difficult or nearly impossible or too expensive to do. So that's ground truth. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about how SageMaker worked, I mentioned that we have all these algorithms that we have built into SageMaker where all you effectively have to do is click and deploy them and the frameworks and the drivers just work for you. And since we launched SageMaker, we've added about 40% more of these algorithms that are built into SageMaker. But there are so many new algorithms coming out all the time from academia, from machine learning expert practitioners, from companies. And our builders say, I'd like more of these things that are just built into SageMaker where I can choose them and they just run. And so we've thought about this a bit and what we decided to do was launch for you a new AWS marketplace for machine learning with over 150 algorithms from the get-go and models that can be deployed directly to SageMaker. So the marketplace for machine learning works very much like the very broadly used and very popular AWS marketplace where you have a bunch of categories and you have things like speaker identification and speech recognition and video classification and handwriting recognition, a large number of these categories. You browse and choose what you want. 
You subscribe in a single click. It's available to you then through SageMaker that you can deploy and just run because we've set up the frameworks and the drivers underneath to just run them, just like the other algorithms in SageMaker. And then if you're a seller, it's also really simple. You just package your algorithm and your model and configuration, and then you register it with the marketplace, and you automatically validate the algorithm or model with a test run on SageMaker, and if it checks out in a self-service fashion, that algorithm shows up in the marketplace that same day. This is a huge game changer, not just for consumers of machine learning and algorithms, but also for the sellers who want to actually make some money from the things they've built or get more usage out of what they're doing. Now, if you think about algorithms, they generally fall into two broad categories. And you can see these on these axes. On the x-axis is the amount of training data required. And on the y-axis, is the sophistication of the machine learning models. And if you looked at uh, supervised learning models in the top right, these are typically ones that require a bunch of labeling and ground truth. And those labels will train the algorithm. If you think about recognition as an example, which is our computer vision service in AWS, it's trained on looking at millions and millions of objects. And the same thing is true with Polly, where we've trained it on listening to thousands and thousands of voices. In the lower left quadrant is unsupervised learning. And these approaches are usually used for things like anomaly detection, where they're trying to find hidden structure in the unlabeled data. So if you can see anomalies in some of that data, you want to know about them so you can take action on them. And this is no worse a methodology than supervised learning. It's complementary. It's, it's just different. It doesn't require training or labeling data. Over the last year or so, a third methodology has emerged that's also complementary. It's called reinforcement learning. And if you think about what the superpower is of reinforcement learning, it's that you can build really sophisticated, complex machine learning models with no training data. And what you do here is you give a reward function or an outcome that you want. And then reinforcement learning algorithms just iterate and iterate through simulations until it finds the right answer. And so if there is something and you're building a model where there is a right answer, like is this a stop sign or is this a pedestrian, you need to have labeling and training data and a supervised learning model. But for problems where there is no right answer, where you don't know the right answer, reinforcement learning is incredibly valuable. Just think about it. Think about if you're trying to optimize your supply chain. Think about if you're trying to figure out the best treatment for cancer. Think about a game. Let me give you a real example. If you spent some of your youth, like I did, playing Pac-Man, and not very well, I might mention, you know that there is no right way to clean a board in Pac-Man, although I'm sure some of you argue there is, but there is no right way. And so with reinforcement learning, what you can do is you define the reward function, which is to clean the board without getting eaten by the monsters. And all the reinforcement learning model needs to know is that you can go up or down or left or right. And then it will iterate and iterate until it finds the optimal way to do it. And so this, if you look at reinforcement learning, 
And you think of the promise, think about how many problems in the world exist where there is no right answer, where you actually just need the ability to simulate and iterate. It can solve so many problems, but reinforcement learning is largely inaccessible to most mortals. It's not supported anywhere. It's complicated to use. There are no tools that make it easy to use it. And if you think about the history of AWS, from the very start of AWS, we have always had as our mission that we want to enable every builder, large or small, in their dorm room or a big company, the ability to have the same access to services and cost structure as the largest companies in the world. And so we want you to be able to take advantage of reinforcement learning. So I'm excited to announce the launch of Amazon SageMaker RL, which is a new machine learning set of capabilities in SageMaker that lets you build, train, and deploy reinforcement, reinforcement learning models. So this will provide you a number of reinforcement learning models right in SageMaker, integrated the same way as all those other algorithms where you don't have to worry about the frameworks and the drivers underneath. It's fully managed um, through SageMaker. It'll support all the major frameworks like TensorFlow and MXNet and PyTorch, but also the reinforcement learning frameworks like Intel Coach and RayRL. It will allow you, we built both a 2D and a 3D set of simulation environments um, or anything that's compatible with Open Gym protocol you'll be able to use to actually try your iterating and to train the model. We've also integrated SageMaker RL with the simulation environments both in RoboMaker, which is our new robotic service that we launched at Midnight Madness on Sunday night, and with Sumerian, which is our AR and VR service. So you have lots of different types of simulation environments to optimize your RL model. And then, because it's new, we've got a bunch of notebooks and tutorials to make it easier for you to use. So we're incredibly excited about bringing this capability in a much more accessible way to our builders. Now, when we thought about this, we ended up having a pretty similar conversation as we had last year. So last year, as we were building SageMaker and we were making machine learning much more approachable for everyday builders, we said, well, it's great to learn about things, but what are some things that we can provide that give people hands-on experience? Because the best way of learning is to actually try it. And so we thought about the same thing here in reinforcement learning. We said, what can we do that allow people to get real hands-on experience? We had a long brainstorm about this, and I have two related announcements to make that I think you'll find useful and interesting. The first is the launch of AWS DeepRacer which is a fully autonomous 118th scale race car driven by reinforcement learning. These are actually pretty cool vehicles. They're about the size of a shoebox, and they have an HD video camera mounted on top to have a view of the road. It's got dual core Intel Atom processors. It's got all wheel drive mounted uh, with a monster truck chassis. It's got suspension, it has two batteries, one for the compute and one to drive. It's got an accelerometer for measuring change in speed, a gyroscope to, to, uh, for detection of direction and orientation. And this car will be something that I think you'll enjoy using 
and I think that you'll actually be able to experience reinforcement learning with. We have a bunch of them here at reInvent, and you'll also be able to order it from Amazon. Now, here's the way DeepRacer will work. You'll have a fully configured 3D physics simulator available in the cloud. It'll have a virtual track and a virtual car that you can, ready, you, you can start racing right now and use right from the get-go. All you need to do is you supply a simple or a complex reward function, and you can do it with just Python script if you want, and then you send it to SageMaker, and then SageMaker will start training your reinforcement learning algorithm. You can watch it, train it, and check in on where it is at any point. Of course, you're able to tweak and make it more complicated and make it more performant, which I'm sure many of you will do. And then once that reinforcement learning algorithm is, is actually trained, you can take it through SageMaker and deploy it to your physical deep racer car. This is pretty cool. Now, one of the things that was really interesting as we watched a lot of our internal folks play around with Deep Racer, you know, first in the virtual sense and then ultimately with the car, was that people started forming races and they started competing against each other. And then they started building teams and factions. And at first it seemed kind of funny, but it started getting pretty competitive. We had to remind people that we were actually trying to build this and launch this for customers. But it was actually kind of interesting and educational for us that people got so into building the optimal RL algorithm to be successful and be first in racing. And so we thought about whether there might be something broader here. And I'm excited to announce the launch of a new sports league, AWS Deep Racer League. And this is the world's first global autonomous racing league open to everyone. And let me tell you how it's going to work. We will have 20 Deep Racer League races at AWS summits around the world in 2019. The winner of every Deep Racer League race, plus the top 10 vote getters or point getters, from those races, and you can go to as many summits as you want to participate in the Deep Racer championships there. The top 10 point getters and the winners of all those races qualify for the Deep Racer Championship Cup, which will be here in Las Vegas and reInvent in 2019. We will also have a number of virtual races where the winners of those and the top 10 point getters will also be invited to participate in the Championship Cup for Deep Racer and reInvent next year. Now, this year, we're going to do something a little bit different. Because we just announced this today, and reInvent is over in just a couple days, we're going to have an accelerated version of the, of the Deep Racer Championship Cup. So you should consider yourselves all under starter's orders. And that's because the very first Deep Racer Championship time trials will start 30 minutes after this keynote is done on a track that we set up at the MGM Grand. And all of you that build simple reinforcement learning algorithms and deploy them to cars, which we will have there at the MGM track, and run laps, we will post those laps. And the top three finishers between 30 minutes after this keynote and 10.30 tonight 
will participate in the finals of the Championship Cup at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning here in this keynote hall before Werner's keynote. So, very exciting. I'm very curious who's going to win. And to share with you how this all worked, as well as provide a demo, it is my pleasure to welcome to the stage, as I do every year, the one and only and inimitable Dr. Matt Wood. Good morning, everybody, and thank you, Andy. AWS Deep Racer is a fully autonomous, 118th scale race car designed to get you rolling with reinforcement learning. You can train your racing models in the cloud and race them in a physical car against other developers in the AWS Deep Racer League. You can train your Deep Racer models using a simulated car and track running in the cloud. You can see here the track and the simulated view from the car's camera. This is a full 3D physics model of how the car interacts with its environment, all the way down to the tire pressure and friction on the texture of the track. Deep Racer learns by experimenting in the simulator. Under the hood, there are two neural networks being trained. The first detects features on the track. The heat map overlay shows what the reinforcement learning model is paying attention to, with red being the most important in making driving decisions. The second is the policy network. This is what makes decisions about when to steer left, steer right, or even accelerate. Once it's learned the basics, the algorithm starts to incorporate your reward function. This is just some Python code which tells you the algorithm what behavior to reward while optimizing for the fastest lap time. Finding the right rewards, like staying on the track and close to the center line, this is where the skill is in autonomous racing. Now, I won't spoil the fun and tell you all the tricks to rack up a fast lap time, except to say that speed it's not as important as you might think. So let's take a look at this on our test track. We have here the Deep Racer on the start line of our official 2018 racing season track. It has a dotted line in the center of the track to help guide the car, but Deep Racer will navigate around this track completely autonomously. The view here is from the camera on the car, and we've added the same heat map overlay to show where the model is looking as it's driving. And we're going to run two models on the same car each of which has spent a different amount of time training in the simulator and used a different reward function. What we'll see is that with more track time and better rewards, the algorithm can learn more and more sophisticated driving behavior. Let's start up the first model. This is like a baby model. It's only spent about 40 minutes in the simulator, and you can see that it's very erratic. It's not very fast. The colors flickering in the heat map show that the model hasn't yet learned what to pay attention to. It just hasn't had enough time on the track. The model also uses a very simplistic scoring function. OK, so that was the baby model. Now let's see what the pro racer version looks like in our second model. This has been trained with a more sophisticated reward function, which rewards correct track positioning and cornering with several hours of simulated track time to learn from. Let's fire her up. You can see this is much less erratic on the track. Deep Racer is driving more smoothly and deliberately. If you look at the heat map in the camera feed, you can see that the attention is much more focused. The reinforcement learning algorithm has been able to discover human-like driving behaviors, such as taking wide corners and aiming at the apex of the curve, which all uh, result in faster lap times. Not too shabby. So before we move on, let's give a quick round of applause to our autonomous racer.
So how can you get started with DeepRacer? Well, starting today, you can pre-order DeepRacer on Amazon.com. It's priced at $3.99, but for a limited time, we're making it available for just $2.49. The first DeepRacer League kicks off in the MGM Grand Garden Arena right after this keynote, and we have tracks and cars ready and waiting for you to race. The fastest lap each hour will receive a free DeepRacer car. And you can win prizes throughout the conference, including a chance to enter the Championship Cup final, which is happening here tomorrow. We're so excited, and we'll see you on the track. With that, I'll hand it back to Andy. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dr. Wood. Always illuminating. Appreciate it. So let's talk about the top layer of the machine learning stack. We talked about the bottom layer for expert machine learning practitioners, the middle layer for everyday developers and data scientists. This top layer is for companies and builders who don't want to mess with the models at all. They just want to plug into built models effectively through an API. And we have built a number of these services over the last couple of years that we've delivered for you. So, if you want to know, here's an object, what's in the object? Or here's a video, tell me what's in the video. Or is this a face? Or does this face match a set of faces that I, this customer, have given you as a set of faces? Those are all part of our computer vision service called Amazon Recognition. Or some customers say, here's text turned to speech, and that's what we built Poly for. Or they say, here's all this audio, transcribe it to text, and that's why we built Amazon Transcribe. Here's this transcribed text, Translate it into lots of languages, and that's what Amazon Translate does. Here are these corpuses of transcribed, translated text, and tell me what the heck is in it, so I don't have to look or have humans do it. And that's what you use natural language processing or Amazon Comprehend for. So a broad set of these top layer services that mimic human cognition and what people often call AI. But if you think about it, so much of the world's data is still locked away in documents. And dealing with documents is actually painful. If you think about it, what most people do is one of a few things, and they all have issues. Either, again, they try to use thousands of humans who sit there with these documents and a terminal and type it in. That's obviously slow and expensive and doesn't get you nearly the amount of documents you want. Some people use OCR. But the problem with OCR is it's kind of a dumb protocol. It's just, it takes all the language and it just kind of takes it as it comes. And sometimes you get text that you can use in a digital format and sometimes you don't. Or sometimes people build templates for certain forms. And the problem is there is an endless number of these forms and the forms themselves change every few years. So they're very rigid and very fragile. And so our customers are frustrated that they can't get more of all this text and data that are in documents into the cloud so they can actually do machine learning on top of it. So we worked with our customers, we thought about what might solve these problems, and I'm excited to announce the launch of Amazon Textract, which is an OCR++ service to easily extract text and data from virtually any document. No machine learning experience required. So this is important. You don't need to have any machine learning experience to be able to use TextTract. Let me tell you how it generally works. So here's a pretty typical document. It's got a couple columns. 
It's got a table in the middle of the left column. When you use OCR, it just basically captures all that information in a row. And so what you end up with is the gobbledygook that you see in that box there, which is completely useless. That's typically what happens. Now let's look at what Textract does. Textract is intelligent. Textract is able to tell that there are two columns here. Textract, so that you actually when you get the, the data and the, and, the, and the language, it reads like it's supposed to be read. Textract is able to identify that there's a table there and is able to lay out for you what that table should look like so you can actually read and use that data in whatever you're trying to do on the analytics and machine learning side. That's a very different equation. Take forms. So what happens with most of these forms is that you know, most of the OCR can't really read the forms or, or, or actually make them coherent at all. Or sometimes these templates will kind of effectively memorize in this box is this piece of data. Well, first of all, as I said, there are thousands of different forms. And Textract is going to work across legal forms and financial forms and tax forms and healthcare forms. We keep adding more and more to these. But also, these forms will change every couple few years. And when they do, something that you thought was a social security number in this box turns out now not to be a social security number. It's a date of birth. And what we have built TextTrack to do is to recognize what certain data items or objects are. So it's able to tell this set of characters is a social security number. This set of characters is date of birth. This set of characters is an address. So not only can we apply it to many more forms, but also if those forms change, TextTrack doesn't miss a beat. So that is a pretty significant change in your capability in being able to extract and digitally use data that's in documents. Now, in the case of something like extracting data from documents, there is a right answer, and there is a master algorithm if you can build it. But there are a bunch of other services where there is no master algorithm. And personalization is a good example of that. If you, you know, there is no right answer, although my daughter Emma thinks there is, to what is the best artist. You know, to, to know what recommendations to make, you have to know what that person likes, what songs they listen to, what artists they buy, what albums they have, what are other interests of like customers who bought similar things, what do they like? And the same is true for film recommendations or article recommendations or any product recommendation of any sort. And when we launched the slew of AI services, we did at reInvent last year, and we were talking to customers in the early part of this year, and we said, what else can we do for you that would be helpful? They all said, why don't you provide as models for us some of the things that Amazon's had to get good at over the last 20 years that you are pioneers in? And one of those things that people ask for over and over again is the next service I'm excited to announce, which is Amazon Personalize, which is real-time personalization and recommendations based on the same technology used at Amazon, no machine learning experience required. So at a high level, the way this works is that you set up a web or a mobile SDK that you attach to your app, you start streaming data in, you tell us things like views and conversion and products and, and what people are buying, and you give us the list of inventory across the array of items you want us to make recommendations on. You can give us 
demographic information, because that often will help the model. By the way, these models are private models. They're only your models. Nobody else has access to them. And then Amazon Personalize uses all the techniques and algorithms we've built over the last 20 years in doing personalization in our retail business at Amazon and effectively gives you recommendations via an API. Now, the way this works behind the scenes is that as you're streaming that data in, we set up an EMR cluster and we inspect the data and we look for the interesting parts of the data that give us some kind of predictor. We also will deal with the sparse data at the long tail of your catalog, which Amazon's had a lot of experience doing. And then we'll select from up to six algorithms that we have built ourselves over the years to do personalization in our retail business and we'll mix and match. We'll set up hyperparameters to, to train the data. We'll train the models and then We'll host the models for you, and you know a lot of the recommendations that we see most frequently, we will keep in a cache for you. And then you get them on the other side in APIs. So if this model, by the way, and these steps look a lot like SageMaker, it's because it is similar to SageMaker, except at this layer of the stack, we're taking care of all those steps for you. So all you have to submit are the inputs, and out of it, you get the outputs, which are recommendations. So this is exciting. I think this will help a lot of companies. Most of us have the need to, to make recommendations to our customers along a lot of different dimensions. Now, we built personalization at Amazon over the last 20 years because one of the core tenets of our retail business is that with no physical boundaries, we were going to have millions and millions of items available to customers. And we worried if we didn't find a way to give people signal through the noise and make them personally relevant, the catalog size might just be overwhelming for people. So we built personalization. Another good example of this, where necessity was the mother of invention for us, was we have to order a lot of items in our business. Think about the millions of SKUs we have in our retail business. We have the same issue in AWS. Think about all the SKUs we have and all the availability zones and regions. We're having the wrong capacity is a problem. And forecasting is actually pretty difficult. What most companies do is they have a, a data point or two that they'll base that forecast on. If you guess too low, it turns out that you run out of inventory and you provide a bad customer experience and leave money on the table. If you guess too high, you sit on wasted product and often obsolescence and you waste a lot of money and sometimes you have to make it up and charging people higher prices. And the problem in forecasting, because it's pretty complicated if you have any kind of business at scale, is it's not usually one or two data points that impact the forecast. It's typically lots of these data points. And you know, if you think in retail, it's things like weather, or it's things like seasonality, or it's things like shipping times, or it's things like who the author or the artist is, or it's things like did a bad review get written. There are tens, sometimes hundreds of these variables that you need to analyze, and it's pretty complicated to do. And again, our customers said, look, you do this at scale. You've been doing it for a long time. You've built a lot of these models. Can you find a way to make the models available to us? And so I'm excited to announce another service, which is called Amazon Forecast, which is accurate time series forecasting based on the same technology used at Amazon to do our forecasting. And again, no machine learning experience required. So forecast works very much the same way that personalized does. You actually start streaming historical data into us, all kinds of 
information on supply chain and inventory levels. And, and then you'll give us all the possible variables that could have impact on the forecast, what we call causals. And then forecasts use the same algorithms that we've built to do forecasting in Amazon over the last 20 years and gives you time series forecasts out of an API on the other end. And what's happening behind the scenes, again, is very, very similar. Where we do the analytics, we look for the signal, we actually will, will then um, uh, choose from eight proprietary algorithms that we've built to do our forecast over the years. We'll select the hyperparameters, train the models, host the models, cache the ones that you need, and then spit out for you time series forecasts. And what it means for you is that you can give us any historical time series for a forecast. We've made it so that you can integrate Amazon Forecast with your more traditional supply chain software like SAP and Oracle Supply Chain. It also integrates with Amazon TimeStream, our time series database earlier, if you want to use that and the data in there as part of your forecast. With just three clicks, you can actually give us the information and get a forecast, so super simple. And when we benchmark with customers in private beta and ourselves, it's providing up to 50% more accurate forecasts than what people were doing on their own before at one-tenth of the cost of traditional supply chain software. So these are a set of new AI services that should allow you to be even more effective in your everyday activities and building a better customer experience and a better business for your customers. So in the little less conversation, a little more action, please, realm, I think this is probably the second year in a row where you've seen just this plethora of services that we've launched for builders at every layer of that stack. And it's never been easier and faster and more cost effective for everyday builders to build, train, tune, and deploy machine learning models than it is today. Now, as we've said a couple times, it's not just machine learning models and services that allow you to do machine learning at scale the way you need to. They're really useful, and there's a huge number of these in AWS at this point. But to really do machine learning the right way, it starts with having the right secure, operationally performant, fully featured, cost-effective data lake or data store with the right access control on some of your most valuable data and the broadest array of analytics services and that broadest array of machine learning services at every layer of the stack. There's nobody across those dimensions that has a set of capabilities like AWS, which is why the vast majority of companies are using AWS for machine learning. Now I'm gonna switch gears again, and I'm gonna talk about the fifth sentiment that we hear from builders. Have you ever had something that you know you need to do you know it's important to do. You know it's going to be hard to do. You know it's going to have challenges, but you know you need to do it. Because the longer you wait, the harder it is. That a lot of enterprises are feeling right now as they think about this transition from on-premises infrastructure to the cloud. And they know that this work that's required to do to move from on-premises to the cloud is work. And they know there are risks associated with it, and there are things that they don't know about yet, but they also know that the longer their wait, the deeper the ditch gets. It gets harder over time, so they need to get going. And so we have been spending a lot of time over the last six to eight years building capabilities 
that allow our enterprise customers to be making this transition at the pace they want to make. And so you saw over several years, we built capabilities like virtual private cloud or VPC or direct connect or storage gateway that make it as seamless as possible to run your on-premises infrastructure alongside AWS. But what a lot of our customers said was, that's great and that's helpful. But because most of the world is virtualized using VMware, it would really be helpful if I could use the same software and tools that I've invested all of this time and resource into to manage my infrastructure on premises the last number of years, but be able to use it to run my infrastructure on AWS's technology infrastructure platform. And that's why we worked really hard to build the partnership that we have with VMware to launch VMware Cloud and AWS, where Companies can now use the same VMware tools they've used to run their on-premises infrastructure, but use it to run their presence on top of AWS. And so customers are pretty excited about this. We have a fair bit of momentum at this point to share what he's seeing in the market. It's my pleasure to introduce to the stage my partner and my friend, the CEO of VMware, Pat Gelsinger. It's uh, great to be here and uh, to join your little party. This is tremendous. That's great. You know, we're doing this so often. You are like, <laughs> we're like Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake, except not as funny or musical. <laughs> but just as talented. Right. I, yeah. uh, maybe in different ways. <laughs> well, Pat, as you know, we've been at this for a while and uh, people are pretty excited about it. Share with us what you're seeing in the marketplace right now. Yeah, well, you know, since we announced our partnership, Andy, this idea of the leader in private coming together with the leader in public and delivering this unique hybrid cloud experience. You know, we've seen globally, you know, an incredible response uh, from customers and partners. And we've been working to deliver the key certifications, right? More and more uh, industry standards. And, you know, we're now rolling out globally at a very aggressive pace. And uh, we're committed by the end of next year, every place that Amazon is, a VMware cloud instance will be in those Amazon uh, zones. And as we've seen, enterprises are widely embracing this capability. And in fact, every time we open up a new region, there's already pent up demand to go for it. And we're seeing, you know, because of this 20 year experience that customers have with the VMware environment, the cloud APIs and services, that customers quickly come on board. You know, maybe a couple of examples, Andy. You know, we have customers like Fiserv, right? Data center consolidation and DR. You know, maybe a customer uh, like uh, Brinks, who's been about the disaster uh, recovery. You know, one of my favorites when we launched in Europe was Playtica, right? A gaming company. They did a very rapid migration, hundreds of VMs in a few days, but now the elastic capacity that we've built together has been a huge factor for them. And maybe the last one has been Tepco. Right? The largest energy company in Japan is now up and running on uh, VMware Cloud in the zone that we announced there. But you know, as we've done this and as they're accelerating their cloud strategies, you know, what we've seen is they've said, wow, you know, this is compelling, but what about my database environment? You know, and that was so exciting because you know, as we've seen RDS, you know, one of your most successful services, right, customers are using that to manage their cloud databases but how do they manage their on-premise database environments? And you know, it just seems like yesterday where you and I were on stage announcing at VMworld 
the availability of Amazon RDS on the VMware environment. And that's gotten a great deal of interest now because they have consistent uh, operational environment. You know, the ability to have cloud-hosted uh, backups and copies, being able to do clones. So that environment has been super successful, and it showed that we're not just taking workloads to the cloud, we're also bringing services from the cloud and really executing on this hybrid environment. It's really been spectacular, Andy. Yeah, it's, it's exciting and customers are excited. We're seeing the same thing in the, uh, across our customers when we talk to them about their hybrid situation and their move moving forward as they're planning on working on that transition. So what else are customers asking for? So people are very excited, as Pat just shared, about VMware Cloud and AWS, but we have some customers who also say, well, that's great, but I have a number of workloads that are going to live on-premises for a long time. And there's lots of different reasons for that. But you know, oftentimes, an example is they need really low latency to something that sits on-premises, like mm -hmm. a factory or something like that. And what they have asked us for is they've said, hey, is there a way that you can provide AWS services like compute, like storage, on-premises, but in a way that really seamlessly and consistently interacts with the rest of my applications in AWS and the rest of the services I might be able to use in mm -hmm, AWS. Mm -hmm. And we thought a lot about this because the thing that customers say consistently when we asked them was they said, I need it to be the same and I need it to be consistent. I want the same APIs, the same control plane, the same tools, the same hardware, the same functionality. And if you look at the options out there today that are trying to solve this problem, they're not the same. It's mm -hmm. different control plane, different APIs, different custom tools. The functionality is always different in the cloud than what's on-premises because you can deploy quicker to the cloud. And it's why those, it's why those options aren't getting much traction right yeah. now. Yeah, you know, same is simple to say, but hard right, to do. Same is hard. And so we thought about this, and we've thought about this for a while because we haven't liked the model that's been out there. But we had a breakthrough a few months ago where we were working with a customer who, worked, who was trying to get compute and storage from AWS on-premises and then connect seamlessly with the rest of their AWS presence in the region closest to them, and this idea we were calling far zones. And we thought, actually, that could be a more generalized idea where we could uniquely solve this problem for customers. And so I'm excited to announce a new capability coming next year called AWS Outposts which will allow you to run infrastructure, AWS infrastructure on-premises for a consistent presence on the cloud and on-premises. So Andy, so you're bringing the AWS cloud hardware on-premise. Yeah, so let me tell you how it'll work. We have, uh, you will take, customers will order racks that will have the same hardware that AWS uses in all of our regions with um, software, AWS services on it, like compute and storage. And then you'll be able to order it in two different variants. For those that want to use, again, those same tools, control plane that they've been using on VMware forever and that they use with VMware Cloud and AWS, they'll be able to have an outpost for VMware Cloud on AWS on those outposts. And then for those that want to use the same exact AWS APIs that they use in the AWS Cloud, but run them on on-premises outposts, you'll have an AWS native outpost option. And on that, you'll be able to run services like compute, whether it's instances or containers or ECS or EKS service or a relational database service or EMR or SageMaker. We expect to have those at launch or shortly thereafter. And also, you'll be able to run software on that 
Um, initially starting with the really interesting, really important, really broadly used VMware software that allows you to be able to manage your presence on premises and across the cloud. And so Pat, this is another area where we've mm -hmm. had a chance to innovate together and provide more capability for those running hybrid. Yeah, you know, and we're, we're excited. You know, we're seeing this opportunity just to continue to innovate together, like VMC, like RDS, and now with Outposts. And you know, we're committed uh, to this uh, partnership and we're seeing it expand to, because we're seeing customers really say this hybrid value proposition is very significant. So with that, what we're doing is we're announcing two new capabilities to complement what you're doing. You know, first is VMware Cloud on the AWS Outpost offering. So not just having VMware Cloud in AWS, but bringing it on-premise with Outposts. Yeah. And that's going to give the full software-defined data center capability on-premise. You know, compute, networking, storage, management, automation, the same VMC. Yeah. Extension. Right, back on-premise. So it's going to be to the cloud, from the cloud, in a consistent way. You know, and this fully integrated solution is going to give enterprises all of those capabilities they expect, data protection, management, storage, in a consistent environment across those. We're also building on our foundational capabilities like vMotion and HCX, so that customers will have the seamlessness, this dynamic uh, environment across those two worlds. But we're also announcing the second variant, right, VMware Cloud Foundation for EC2. So we're also bringing many of our technologies, that complete software-defined data center, and offering it for Outposts uh, native as well. And in particular, as part of that, is really the networking piece, because how do I connect my network to this new environment I'm bringing on-premise? And NSX, you know, is already the standard for software-defined yeah. network. 80-plus percent of the Fortune 100 are using it already today. You know, and we're seeing these ideas like micro-segmentation, common networking, bridging between worlds yeah. is foundational for NSX. So that, as well as cloud management, app defense for security, cloud automation, all of these enterprise capabilities, you know, we believe is just going to be this perfect wrapper around the AWS Outpost native offering as well. So between VMware Cloud Foundation, VMware Cloud on uh, AWS Outpost, these two offerings are just going to continue to extend the rich innovation that VMware and Amazon are bringing to the broad customer base that we have here. Yeah, it's very exciting and, uh, we're, you know, one thing I would say as we close this segment is that um, you know, we're excited about all the offerings that we've collaborated on together, but I would also say that the partnership has really been a terrific partnership where the teams continue to work very closely together and most importantly, trying to do the right things for all of you. We're trying to listen to what you most want, trying to listen to what's working for you and what's not working for you, either in our own offerings or others, and then continue to innovate quickly together to let you run hybrid the way you want. It's a great partnership. I appreciate you being hey, here. Hey, Andy, thank, thank you so much. Thank and congratulations you. on the announcement. I appreciate it. Thanks, Pat. So we're really excited about Outposts and we're really excited about the collaboration with VMware. I'll mention um, two other quick things, which is regardless of which variant you choose, it'll run the same hardware that you're able to run in your regions in AWS. And then also, it'll, we will deliver the racks for you. We'll install them if you want. They're pretty easy, they just plug in, but if you want us to install them, we will. And then we'll do all the maintenance and repair on them. So it's, uh, I think it's a pretty exciting opportunity for you. So when you look now 
and the family of hybrid capabilities that over the years that we have started to build for you as you're making this transition from on-premises to the cloud, it's pretty expansive. So as I mentioned earlier, you have the ability to run VPCs and direct hack and storage gateways to run seamlessly with your on-premises infrastructure in AWS. If you want to use the same tools to manage your VMware that you've been managing your on-premises environment through VMware to be able to run those on the AWS cloud, you can do so with VMware Cloud and AWS. Outpost will allow you to have AWS services and hardware on-premises for those workloads that need to stay on-premises, but where you want the same connection and consistency in the same AWS to the rest of your workloads in AWS and the rest of the services. And then for those that have environments that have little to no connectivity or that are rugged, where you need a ruggedized device, we just launched a couple days ago our latest version of Snowball Edge, which is compute optimized, which allow you to run those in perpetuity or for as long as you want at the edge where you have no connectivity. So a really broad array of hybrid options as you're making this transition over the next few years. So I'm going to close with one final thought. You know, I think over the last several decades, it has been a little bit of a dreary world for builders. They have been constrained at a lot of these companies for a long time by the on-premises infrastructure they've had. And they've frequently had to choose when they've had three good ideas. The answer is you can do that idea or that idea or that idea, but only one of them. That is frustrating. Most builders didn't decide to join a business so they could do the same thing over and over again, or if they work creatively with a team to come up with 10 ideas to do one of them. Those types of or choices are demoralizing. And what's happened at those companies over several years is that they've trained builders not to spend their free time or energy trying to invent or innovate on the customer experience, because why bother? You're just not gonna be able to try anything, even if you have a great idea. Now what's happened for enterprises and for companies who have adopted AWS in the cloud the last several years is it's completely changed. When you have 140 plus services with the depth of features we have in those services in AWS, where you can deploy servers in minutes and you don't have to build any of the infrastructure software yourself, you can get from ideas to implementation in several orders of magnitude faster than before. That's a very different world. It turns an or world into an and world. I have five ideas, and I can experiment and try all five ideas and see which ones work. And one of the things that we've seen in enterprises who have made a big move to the cloud is that it has totally changed the culture such that builders at every level of the organization are spending their free cycles thinking about new customer experience ideas because they know if they come up with them, they can try them and see them. And that's why they come to work. If you think about how many companies in the history of business have been able to build long-standing, sustainable businesses, it is a vanishingly small amount that is getting smaller and smaller by the day. And if you think about what FDR said, which is the only thing to fear is fear itself, a lot of times people get focused on the wrong things when they think about how to build sustainable businesses. The best way to build a sustainable business 
is not to worry about your competitors or focus on your competitors or any of the little small things that we all can sometimes get distracted with every day. For any of us that are trying to build long-standing sustainable businesses, which is hard, the most important thing by far is to listen really carefully to what your customers want from you and how they want the experience to improve and then to be able to experiment and innovate at a really rapid clip to keep improving the customer experience. That is the only way that you will be able to survive, any of us will be able to survive over a long period of time. That's what you should care about, is giving your builders the most capable platform to allow them to keep iterating on that customer experience. There is no platform that gives your builders the capabilities anything like AWS. We'll be here every step of the way to help. And so I appreciate your listening. I hope you have a good week. And I'll see you soon. Thank you.